Diakonos, the cop's calling, is now a proud affiliate of Audible. Right now, you can go to audibletrial.com slash diakonosacc to get a free 30-day trial. I personally have an Audible membership and absolutely love it. I know this is an old man problem, but I cannot for the life of me read a book because within two pages, I'm falling asleep. Audible is my go-to way to take in a book. As a family, we also use it on long trips to listen to books with the kids, and I personally use it when I'm driving, doing yard work, or have some downtime. Recently, I just completed Seven More Men by Eric Metaxas. In this episode, you also hear my guest and I talk about the book Left of Bang by Patrick Van Horn and Jason Riley. I have that downloaded into my Audible account as well. Audible offers thousands of audiobooks, podcasts, including this one, plus much more. As an affiliate, Diakonasa Cops Calling podcast gets a commission for each newly generated trial through the link provided. You can get your free 30-day trial right now. Just go to audibletrial.com slash diakonasacc. That's audibletrial.com slash d-i-a-k-o-n-o-s-a-c-c. This link will also be included in the podcast episode description and can also be found on the podcast website at diakonasacc.com. This podcast is for grown-ups only. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We need a stronger warning for this episode. This episode definitely has bad words. What does it have? Bad words. And what else does it have? And content that is not for little ears. From a hierarchical chart... You look at it, yeah, I have subordinates, people that work for me and stuff. I've never looked at it that way. The further up I go, the more people I have that I'm working for. If I remember talking to that officer that night, I remember talking to him, I said, hey, is there anything you could have done different? Well, I said, yeah, the thing you could have done different would have been getting stabbed. How's that work for you? Um, ignore all of this. And to his credit, like he sat there and I felt his pain because he can't come back out and help the rest of the department. He knew what the rest of us were gonna go through. Radio traffic was above what we could, couldn't get out on it. And very long story I short, I ended up in a really bad spot and you know, he ran his car up and over me. Um, it hurt. <laughs> I could never sacrifice my son to save another person, even if that person was the most amazing, quote-unquote, good person I ever met. It, it wouldn't happen. I, I could not do it. And yet what God did is sacrifice his son for his enemies. This is Diakonos, a cop's calling. I'm Anthony Weaver. And this is episode four of season two. I got a great episode for you this month, but it also comes with a heavy heart. At the top of this episode, I want to remember retired Lancaster City Police Lieutenant Michael Bradley, who passed away on March 4th. During my career, he was both my sergeant and my lieutenant for many years. His work ethic was second to none, showing up for work every day and being an example for all that worked for him. I would think Lieutenant Bradley probably single handedly prevented more burglaries than any other officers. He had an uncanny ability of finding open doors in businesses early in the morning, making sure no one was inside, and then securing the business 
to prevent anyone from gaining access. He was always quick to get out of his cruiser and walk, checking many areas that could not be accessed by a cruiser. Always willing to tell you when you messed up, but quicker to tell you when you did a good job. It was my pleasure to work for him. Lieutenant Bradley served for 34 years and upon retiring, immediately took a position as an evidence technician for the department, where he processed scenes ranging from property crimes to horrific murder scenes. This loss was a punch to the gut for me, uh, and his family have my condolences. As you know, Diakonos, a cop's calling exists to promote law enforcement with biblical truth and help people better understand the calling of a police officer. That's the podcast mission, and every month I have the privilege of doing that by having guests who take time out of their lives to sit down with me and share their stories with you. My guest on this episode is someone that helped shape my career and how I did the job. He's a great guest, and you'll definitely want to hear his take on the job and why he does what he does. But before that, I also wanted to express my gratitude to you. I know I sound like a broken record in this sometimes, but without you, I could not do this every month. Whether it's giving me feedback and encouragement, listening to every episode, sharing it with friends and family, or becoming a patron, whatever it is, This podcast cannot happen without you. As such, I have one call to action for this episode. Become a patron. That's it. You can do that by going to theakonasacc.com and clicking on the support tab to learn more. Many of you listen to every episode and even reach out to tell me how much you enjoy the podcast. Uh, So why not become a patron of the show? By doing so, you can get access to patron-only content and may even be able to engage in live episodes. You get entered into prize drawings and can take part in polls. In return, you give me resources to make the podcast better. For as little as $5 per month, you can become a patron. You could join 21 other patron families and support the mission of this podcast, not just in word, but also in action. My goal is to make that 21 patrons reach 30 patrons by the end of the year. You can help me do that. Go to diakonosacc.com and click on the support tab and then click the link uh, to become a patron. I would surely appreciate it. Speaking of patron perks, Diakonos the Cops Calling has a special live episode coming up for patrons only on Friday, March 25th at 8.30 p.m. Uh, I will be joined by Dr. John Churchville, a past guest and the Criminal Justice Program Director at Lancaster Bible College. In addition, Professor Tony Bruno, also from Lancaster Bible College, will be behind the mic and joining in on that conversation. If you are a $10 plus per month patron, you will be able to listen and engage live in that episode. If you are a patron who gives less than $10 per month, you will still be able to listen to that episode after it has been recorded. Uh, So patrons, keep an eye on your email inbox for more information regarding that live episode. That is a sound of So Woke It's Broke. The So Woke It's Broke segment comes courtesy of the Portland Police Bureau Rehire push. This information, uh, the information for this segment comes from Police One, LawEnforcementToday.com, The New York Post, Hill.TheHill.com, and The Oregonian. First, some history and refresh on the dumpster fire that is Portland. Portland had some of the worst riots in the U- United States, which stretched from 2020 into 2021. In fact, they had riots for nearly 200 days straight. That takes a huge toll on police officers. From personal experience, I can tell you that when you are on a line and or in command of people on a line uh, at a protest or a riot. It's exhausting, absolutely exhausting. I cannot imagine how these officers did it for 200 days straight. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, the riots include the police being attacked with rocks, bottles, Molotov cocktails, mortars, metal spikes, and explosives. 
Uh, federal buildings were also targeted, and federal law enforcement personnel came in to assist local law enforcement. We gloss over this, but just to flesh that out, how dangerous this is. A stone or rock to the side of the head or to your shin definitely hurts and can definitely cause serious injury. Metal spikes being thrown at officers and placed on the road so the fire department could not respond to fires that had been started. Uh, again, just, just uh, some really nasty stuff. Molotov cocktails, obviously exploding fire onto you. Mortar-style fireworks fired directly at police officers. Uh, other explosives meant to seriously injure or kill officers. Those, we, we kind of gloss over what police were, or what uh, suspects were using in these um, riots and uh, protests. But these are serious uh, weapons that can seriously injure and or kill uh, citizens or, or other officers. Um, these protests and riots also included a siege on the federal courthouse in July 2020. In 2020, the Portland PD, in conjunction with Homeland Security, had decided to remove the fencing in hopes of healing and having conversations. Surprise, it didn't work. Uh, they re-erected the fence around the building in an attempt to fortify it. Uh, around the federal courthouse to, to, in an attempt to fortify it and keep it from being burned to the ground and or destroyed. Again, uh, the protesters, rioters used fireworks that they threw at the police. Um, we're talking like mortar-style fireworks, not sparklers, but like exploding mortar-style fireworks uh, being launched at the police. Rioters attached chains to the fence and tried to rip it down. Uh, there were numerous attempts to start the federal courthouse on fire. Um, and during this, the Portland mayor, Ted Wheeler, actually joined the rioters at one point, and uh, he was actually tear-gassed himself uh, when he was in the crowd. So here's my brief comments on Mayor Ted Wheeler of Portland. I don't know very much about him, but he appears to be your quintessential politician. At one point, a Republican, then waffling to a Democrat and winning the mayorship in Portland. He appears to be swayed and bought by the whims of whomever and whatever can get him votes. Supporting the police in one breath and denouncing them in the next, Attempting to appease criminals, but then realizing criminals can't be appeased when they showed up at his own condo and started fires in front of it and began to riot. Uh, he, he is swayed to and fro with the winds of what's popular in order to maintain power. Uh, it's just my humble two cents on him. But regardless, during the siege on the federal courthouse and because it is federal property, federal law enforcement was used in conjunction with Portland PD to protect and disperse the rioters. This is, a, this is an actual quote from Mayor Ted Wheeler at that time. What happened here, this quote, what happened here is we have dozens, if not hundreds of federal troops descending upon our city, and what they're doing is they are sharply escalating their, the situation. Their presence here is actually leading to more violence and more vandalism, end quote. Absolutely ridiculous comments. Uh, it is beyond me why these politicians don't decry criminals and instead decry the very people who are, who are trying to quell the violence and arrest the criminals. Uh, not troops, but federal police officers. This is not the military that came in. These are federal police officers that were needed to try to protect the federal courthouse at one point, which contained people inside. Instead of praising the officers that were working every day with no time off, again, this, this stuff was going on for over 200 days or nearly 200 days in Portland. It's exhausting. Um, and, and instead of praising those officers that were working every day with no time off, the officers who had, you know, these are officers that had to give up scheduled vacations, officers that were being injured and harmed. Instead of praising them and encouraging them to stand strong, instead of giving them support, he instead chose to vilify them and blame them 
and bring punitive actions against them, opening investigations and blaming them for, quote unquote, attacking the rioters. So that's the history. I mean, a very brief, very concise history of what occurred in Portland uh, in 2020 and 2021. Um, there are still pockets of it occurring in Portland, I believe. Uh, here, are, here are some results of all that silliness. Because it has been decided that the police are the problem and not the criminals, uh, Mayor Ted Wheeler oversaw the PD being defunded $16 million um, in 2020. The mayor and uh, the, the rest of city administration cut $16 million from the police budget in 2020. Meanwhile, rioters appeared to receive kid glove, kid glove treatment with the progressive Multnomah County District Attorney's Office, which oversees Portland, dropping charges for a whopping 68% of the rioters. Dropped the charges for 68% of the rioters in 2020. Obviously, many officers left the Portland Police Bureau over all this craziness, and Portland is cur currently at its lowest strength and amount of vacancies in 28 years, and they're expecting another wave of retirements in July of this year. So Mayor Ted Wheeler and City Council, they're flabbergasted. They are facing the greatest shortage of police officers in nearly three decades as the city sets new homicide records. So after overseeing a defunding of the police department and completely demonizing the officers, they decided in November 2021, to approve $448,000 to hire back 25 retired officers. They did this because it's much cheaper to hire officers with experience than brand new officers that require background investigations and academy training. Uh, basically, the politicians of Portland are now trying to stop the hemorrhaging that in many ways they are responsible for causing. So in January 2022, they had Chief Chuck Lavelle and Portland Police Bureau mail a letter out to 81 recently retired officers. Two, two of those officers expressed interest. Two. That in and of itself should tell you something. In the letter, those who were barred from being rehired included any officer who retired in lieu of being investigated or facing investigation or discipline, officers who trained others in methods known to be, quote, unconstitutional crowd control practices, end quote, officers who violated city policy by, listen to this, quote, cooperating with federal agents to attack. Portland residents, end quote, and officers who have complaints that were sustained in their personnel file within the last 10 years for use of force, unconstitutional policing, or violations of the city's harassment and discrimination policy. Obviously, some of those reasons are legitimate, but the one that talks about retired in lieu of being investigated, so an officer who just was completely done with dealing with the garbage finds out he or she is being investigated and retires, doesn't even have a chance. And they opened up investigations on, on a lot of officers during the uh, riot response. Some of them, I'm sure, justified. Many of them, completely not justified. Not because they did anything wrong, but just because the retired, instead of dealing with an investigation, um, did not, just retired. But if they retired and, and they were subject to investigation, they won't even look at rehiring them, them back. And I personally have been investigated uh, for false accusations. Um, so, you know, that really means nothing to me. The fact that they were just, they retired while being investigated does not mean that they did anything wrong. It just means they were completely done with the city administration. It could mean they did something wrong, but you're completely cutting them out of the mix. The other point, officers who violated policy by helping federal agents attack Portland residents. Uh, Seriously, you mean the residents that were trying to burn down the courthouse, the residents who were trying to violently assault other people and the police? 
give me a break. Uh, I was not the only person uh, burned up by this letter. I thought it was absolutely ridiculous. Like I said, 81 retired officers received this letter and only two expressed interest. One officer that did not express interest but complete disgust was Officer Stephanie Hudson. She worked from October 1994 until May of 2021 with the Portland Police Bureau. She left Portland and immediately started working for Hillsborough PD. I'm going to read, uh, read to you her response to that letter. She sent a letter back to the uh, Portland Police Bureau chiefs, uh, and, and it's pretty epic. And, I, and it also gives you an inside look of what was going on in Portland. So I'm going to read it verbatim. This is what she said to the police, uh, Portland Police Bureau chiefs. I can only assume that the letter regarding the retire rehire program was sent to me in error. An officer of 26 plus years does not resign months before they are eligible to retire to go to another police agency where they take a pay cut and lose seniority unless it's pretty awful where they were at. Your letter states, quote, you left at a time of great despair for the Bureau and the city of Portland. 2020 became a perfect storm that thrust our Bureau and the city into a very dark period, end quote. This sounds as if you feel that those who left abandoned the city in her time of need. But in reality, it is the officers who were abandoned. The darkness, destruction, and death to Portland was a result of your failed policies and the lack of leadership. The, quote, perfect storm of which you speak was the demonization of police by the mayor's office and city council members and the failure of Portland Police Bureau leadership to stand up to them in support of their own officers. Your letter mentions, quote, considerable support from elected officials, end quote. This is laughable. Portland has a mayor who refuses to call out Antifa and condemn the riots, a DA who refuses to prosecute violent rioters, and a council member who accuses police of committing the arsons and violence that were committed by the rioters. All of these previously mentioned people blame, quote, right-wing extremists, end quote, and the police for the violence and destruction in Portland. Do you recall Marquise Love? Love repeatedly punched and then kicked a man with whom he had no beef in the head leaving him unconscious in the street. It's a miracle that he didn't kill that man. Yet he received a mere 20-month sentence, of which he will probably only serve a year. Out of the 1,000-plus arrests made during the riots, probably only 10% were even prosecuted. Is that the, quote, considerable support, end quote, of which you speak? The one obvious sign that nothing has changed is the statement that the city will disqualify rehire candidates for, quote, cooperating with federal agents to attack Portland residents, end quote. That statement is beyond offensive. Those federal agents responded out of a necessity to protect an occupied courthouse that was under attack because the mayor wouldn't allow Portland Police Bureau officers to do it. It was the federal agents, local law enforcement, and actual citizens of Portland who were being attacked by Antifa. Citizens with political and religious beliefs that oppose Antifa and those who are in positions of power in Portland are left to fend for themselves. Just ask Andy No. Meanwhile, the mayor, uh, just a quick note on that, Andy No is a reporter. Uh, He's done a lot of reporting in Portland about what actually is going on there. Um, He's a good follow on Twitter. Um, Just a side note there. Um, Her letter continues. Meanwhile, the mayor was more concerned about punishing the feds for blocking the bike lane next to the courthouse. By, quote, cooperating with federal agents, end quote, are you referring to those Portland Police Bureau officers who were given federal credentials? 
Those federal credentials were necessary to arrest the most violent of offenders in hopes those offenders would remain in federal custody as opposed to booking them into the Multnomah County Jail where they would be released the same night and immediately commit more crimes thanks to District Attorney Schmidt. Antifa became so emboldened with the lawlessness that was embraced by our city leadership that they actually began hunting and murdering people. Of course, one of the murder victims was deemed a, quote, right-wing extremist, end quote, and Trump supporter. So no big deal, right? Thank God for those federal marshals who sought to bring that victim's murderer to justice. Each of your signatures on that rehire letter is an endorsement of the statement that federal agents attacked the residents of Portland. I don't know how else it can be interpreted. If you don't agree with that statement, it says more about you that you still willingly sign the letter on January 6, 2022. I don't presume to speak for other officers, but I can tell you that your letter was not well received. It has been, been described as, quote, tone deaf. You might have had more luck had you acknowledged the roles you, the mayor, and city council played in the, quote, perfect storm that thrust the city into a, quote, dark period. Leadership is bigger than you as an individual, and sometimes it requires you to step out of your comfort zone to do what is morally right. It is more than a bump in pay and a better pension. You don't choose a leader because of the color of their skin. You choose them because they have proven themselves to be qualified. You don't force a woman who was respected by her peers and worked her way through the ranks to become chief to resign because of the color of her skin. Do you have any idea what that did for the morale in the rank and file? Uh, Officer Hudson is referring to Chief Jamie Rush, who was forced out uh, in part by leadership of three African-American groups in Portland who didn't believe Portland Police Bureau command staff was diverse enough. Whether or not they were capable or qualified was uh, in question. The, the color of their skin was the only factor for these groups, and, and Chief Jamie Rush was forced out. That's who she's referring to. Uh, continuing with her letter, Portland Police Bureau leadership need leaders, not followers. Leaders who are willing to make sacrifices. Leaders who show their support for men and women who work 24-7 to protect and serve its communities. Support that includes more than just the occasional pat on the back email for good work on some random call. Your letter indicates that nothing has changed. It simply highlights why those who could leave did leave. I suspect it will take a decade or more to repair the damage that has been done. At this point, I would be more concerned about finding good people willing to make policing a career. Good luck. Signed, Stephanie. Well said, Officer Stephanie Hudson. This officer, along with many others in Portland, know that the Portland Police Bureau and the end City Hall push to rehire retired officers is so woke, it's broke. Their liberal policies pushed many good officers to the breaking point. And in doing so, the city is at a breaking point with crime skyrocketing and officers fleeing. Woke policies do not solve problems and only seek to appease. And as Winston Churchill once famously quoted, Quote, an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile, hoping it will eat him last, end quote. Right now, Portland is being eaten by the crocodiles, and only once the leaders seek to do what's right instead of appease will they see any true change. They need not reinvent anything, but simply have the fortitude and the courage to do the right thing. Switching gears here, one of the hard parts of doing and promoting a podcast is doing so while intense and troubling things are happening in the world, but not necessarily part of the wheelhouse of this podcast. I don't want to be unaware and often have opinions and thoughts on many things that I just keep to myself because they have no bearing on the mission of the podcast. 
However, certain things like the recent Russian invasion of Ukraine are just so gripping and so front page that I feel compelled at times to give some thoughts. What has struck me about the Russian invasion of Ukraine is some of the most amazing stories of bravery and courage coming out of that country. Regardless of the corruption of the Ukrainian government, it is a sovereign nation that Russia is invading and attempting to take over. And I've been amazed at, at some of the stories of absolute bravery and love of country that are coming out of there. My favorite one so far is a story about a group of Ukrainian soldiers on Snake Island. Snake Island is part of Ukraine and located in the Black Sea. And during the invasion, uh, the first couple days of the invasion, a Russian warship advanced on the island, making an announcement to the Ukrainian troops on the island, quote, I am a Russian warship. I ask you to lay down your arms and surrender to avoid bloodshed and unnecessary deaths. Otherwise, you will be bombed. Uh, the Ukrainian troops responded back, Russian warship, go F yourself. Initially, it was believed that the Russian warship then fired on the Ukrainian troops and killed them, but recent news reports suggest that they may have been taken prisoner instead. Regardless, I want to highlight the courage and intestinal fortitude it took for those outnumbered troops to respond the way they did. Now, perhaps you get caught up on the language. Sure, it could be considered rough and it's not very nice or Christian, but what about the devotion to duty, the love of country and countrymen? and the courage to say that sort of thing when facing certain death or capture. Instead of focusing on the word, I wanted to focus on the motives of the hearts of those men on display as they attempted to fight for their own people and country. We can agree that they were men of strong will and character and love of country and countrymen. We have people like that here in the USA. For sure, they hold many different jobs from all walks of life, but many of them are found in law enforcement, the military, and other service-oriented or first responder type professions. People who are willing to literally put themselves in harm's way in defense of others, even those they disagree with. And how are we treating them right now? They often hold more conservative values, and for that we call them stupid and behind the times, unloving, racist, etc. They often hold a love of country and patriotism, and for that we call them white supremacists, Christian nationalists or white nationalists, Many of them are willing to fight if needed, and for that we call them violent and dangerous and part of toxic masculinity and patriarchy. We have demonized many who are willing to sacrifice for all. They are literally the very people we will need if we are ever facing anything like Ukraine is facing. But they also are the very people we need when we are facing any type of danger, whether it be from tyranny or criminal wolves. These type of people are generally the ones who will move forward and step to the danger. The ones that are most often vilified and labeled as dangerous due to their politics or beliefs are actually the ones most willing to defend those who, are, who have labeled them. Only conflict and hard times will change the minds of the people who hate them. Because when the virtue signaling signs in their yards are trampled and their rose-colored rainbow, rainbow love propaganda is laughed at by those who are evil, only then will they realize that righteous violence will be needed to stop evil, and then they will see the need for those they vilify. This stuff really bothers me when I see it. People vilifying the very people who will protect them and help them. The police do this every day, helping those that hate them, yet who at the same time call the police in their time of need when they are desperate for an officer. Someone who is capable of force that starts with their fists and ends with their guns. My guest on this episode even shares some stories to that end. 
providing real-life examples of officers helping those who hate them. And you're going to hear from him right now. My guest for this episode is Lieutenant Chris Laser with the Lancaster City Police Department here in Pennsylvania. Chris has been in law enforcement for 31 years. You are an old man. Uh, initially getting hired with Mannheim Township PD in 1989 before leaving that department and getting hired with Lancaster City in 1994. Uh, Chris is a highly decorated police officer who has given a lot to the profession. Uh, and, and one of the things he's given to the profession is uh, riding with me and training me uh, on how to be a proactive uh, police officer and make solid cases from the street to conviction. Uh, he's one of the best street cops I've ever been around. And uh, he has a keen ability to recognize criminal behavior, deal with it effectively, and articulate it all on paper in court. As with all my guests on the job, he is here on his own volition and his own time. His opinions and comments are his own, and he is not here representing his department. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> oh, man, he's got the giggles already. Um, I don't even know if I needed to say that last part, because I think at this point, you don't even care. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's been interesting. It's been an interesting intro. Your math doesn't quite add up from 1989 through, but I won't hold that against you. What do you mean? Um, you, you got uh, hired in Manheim Township <laughs> at 19, in 1989, is that correct? I got hired as a civilian with them. I got hired as a sworn officer in 90. Gotcha. Spent four years with them, left the top patrolman's pay to come into the city. Um, you know, I, I actually like being on township. There's stuff I, I learned out there that I don't know that I would have had the same influence in my career. Man, I'm township at the time had some of the best trained guys, some of the best equipment. Um, that's really where I, my emphasis on training came from. And, you know, I got to give guys like Rich McCracken out there absolute credit for, uh, with stuff, you know, as, as goofy as it sounds back with one of the original PPC and C instructors, you know, going around, hey, this is what we have to do. Taught me the technique and stuff. Just a lot of things that I wouldn't have picked up here in the city when I started. When I came in here in 94, it was run nonstop. Yeah. You know? And we had a bit of a breather out there with stuff. And you realize the importance of some of that end of it. <clears throat> you know, that importance in training to me, my my personal desire with training extended through my whole career with stuff. Um, all the way up through the promotional and, and just the day-to-day -day things with stuff. You realized how important it really was. Right. So do you regret leaving Mannheim Township or not really, or not regret it? No, it was, uh, I left there for, for a lot of specific reasons. Um, one of it at the time, quite frankly, I was the only guy in that department at the time without a college degree. Uh, you know, I graduated high school barely by the skin of my teeth, um, got hired there as a civilian with stuff, worked my way through, got hired as a sworn officer. And it really, it was just the timing of the guys that were sergeants and supervisors there at the time with them leaving and the guys that were above me, like looking at the time frame, I'm like, I got 20 years till I have a chance for any of these positions. Nothing wrong with the 20, 25 year patrolman if that's what you wanted. I always wanted to attain at least the rank of sergeant. Uh, the city had a lot more opportunities with it, and it also had a lot of more opportunities with specialty units with stuff. So 
I left, I came in here. I mean, the only regret really was the first full paycheck I got in the city. Uh, make no mistake, my take home on that first full paycheck was less than my taxes of my last check at Man on Township. <laughs> and it was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there was overtime, you made it work, you know, and stuff. And, and I enjoyed what I did. And I've got, throughout my career in the city, I have no regrets. The only thing, the only two thing positions that I haven't served in was actually having a canine myself and or riding mounted canine. Every time an opening came up, it just hasn't worked. Now with that, I've worked really closely with a, almost every one of the guys we've had over the years. I've also supervised that unit. Um, all the way up through the chain with stuff. Mounted, I've ridden horse before. I've never had an interest in riding a horse at work. Uh, with that, I've also deployed the horses more in active situations than any other supervisor we've had. Right. Um, you, you know, I've also supervised them directly with stuff over the years. So I, it's not really regrets. I mean, money-wise, yeah, I would have made a lot out there. Um, you know, one of my best and late friends, Mark Garon, was nice enough a number of years ago to sit there and come into lineup as a patrolman of my shift and do a full PowerPoint presentation on how much I had lost over the years <laughs> by coming in here to work. Um, and anybody that knows Mark knows that's the kind of asshole that he was. Right. <laughs> and I just looked, I'm like, thanks. I'm going to go back to the office and cry now. <laughs> um, I can actually uh, uh, picture Mark doing that. Yeah. Um, but you know what? Like I said, I've I've never once regretted. I've absolutely enjoyed every opportunity I've had in the city, you know, over the years and and currently with some of our employment issues, we've had some guys that have left for other departments, you know, making more money with stuff. I've always made it real clear. I said, look, I said, you don't come in and stay and work for an urban department anywhere, like not just Lancaster City, anywhere, anywhere. in the country. Right. Um, strictly for the money. No. You, you know, you, you come in because you love the shop, you love what you do, and you absolutely believe in it, and you're a service-oriented person. Um, there's no amount of money that can replace that with stuff. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, that's a tough road to hold with, yeah. with things. You and I have had that discussion. Right. You know, it's... Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I loved, I loved all my time with Lancaster City. Um, I know, you know, on, on some of these episodes, I've been critical of some of the stuff that has happened in there, but I don't, um, yeah, I don't begrudge working for that department. It was a great department to work for, um, and I, I really enjoyed it. So technically, you were hired in Manheim Township as an officer in 1990. That's what you're saying then? Yes. Okay. So you've been in law enforcement then for... 31 years. I'm still trying to do the yeah. math in my head quickly here. <laughs> I'm just messing with you here. Yeah. It's been a long time. So how did you, what drives you to keep doing it? Like, how are you still doing it? What drives you to keep doing it? It's, it's really one of those no quit mentalities. Um, and that was inbred to me early on in life. Um, you know, my, my mom and my dad kind of bred that into me. I, we grew up with not a whole lot of nothing. I mean, very blue collar family with stuff. I was taught, hey, don't whine, don't cry. Um, was in Boy Scouts. My dad was in Boy Scouts as a leader. 
from the time I knew him growing up through, he's still involved in Boy Scout. He's also involved with like every service organization that's out there with stuff. I can't turn around a corner without somebody, oh, hey, that's your dad? You're kidding me. I'm like, eh, I know. He looks like Santa Claus, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> but seriously, I mean, that, that's what I was growing. I mean, most of my summers as an early teen and through most of my teens, I spent working at, at a scout camp. I made not, next to nothing during those weeks up, up there that I worked. But you were taught that service-oriented self with things. Uh, one of the main organizations I'm a member of. I'm a member of the Elks right now, so is my wife. It's not just because it's a social club or anything else. It's also a service organization. Like the Elks is one of the top five um, givers of grants and what's the word I'm looking for? You know, for people for scholarships. scholarships and the like for private organizations in the nation for years with stuff. Um, it's just kind of the nature of the being. And that's kind of how I was brought up. You know, I look at it and I laugh and, you know, on the increst of one of the tattoos I have on the forearm, there's, you know, if not me, then who? Uh, that's a huge, that doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people. To me, it does. You know, and people look at it and like, ah, yeah, you got these tattoos. All right, whatever. You're one of these people and stuff. Okay. Yeah. It's also in the middle of St. Michael's sealed and insured. I shouldn't have to explain that to a lot of people. Right. Most people listen to this podcast. I probably don't. Others, they're never going to get it. Um, that's just how I've been brought up. And it's just one of those you've, it's tough to realize when you end. Um, yeah. I think one of the best examples that I saw, movies or anywhere often, as much as I hate to say it, but American Sniper, there's one scene where two of the guys are in there talking and, you know, two of their best friends, you, like, you remember growing up, you know, when you grab a hold of that electric fence and the whole thing was to see who could hold on the longest with stuff. And they were talking about combat and things, um, you know, and that's, that's kind of one of the, it's it, who can hold on the longest. Um, Last year, you and I had some intimate conversations about you looking to move on with stuff. And I'll never forget you asking me, how do you keep doing it? Because I feel bad. Your comment, I feel bad because I'm leaving. You're still here doing this stuff. Right. Um, and it's just one of those, I will hold on. I will hold on till I can't hold on anymore. Um, and I think I told you, I said, look, every, everybody's got a breaking point with stuff. Everybody Actually, you, you said everyone has a shelf life because I'll never forget that. Um, and, and I was like, well, I'm pretty sure my shelf life here is done. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it was just one of those like really impactful conversations that I've had with you that resonated with me. Um, and sure, there, there's like a, a hit to my pride a little bit looking back at that and being like, yeah, I, I was done. Like I, I, it was, it was my time to be done. Um, but like I told you before we went on here, um, no regrets about that. It was, it was the right decision for me. Uh, but yeah, I marvel, I marvel at guys like you who, you know, are still working in that, um, environment, like an urban environment that are still going and getting after it. Um, I don't know how you do it. I'll, I'll be honest. I don't know how you do it. Well, make no mistake. I mean, a number of years ago, I went from running a night shift that well, you're well aware I did forever 
in a day. Loved it and like, and there was a number of reasons for doing it. I mean, some of it was personal back then at that point in time with stuff that didn't work out so well. Um, but the other part of it was, you know, from the military concept, it went from being that A team to that B team. That's a tough transition to make for certain people. I mean, I went from the guy that was kicking the door and going through it and, and knuckle dragging and everything else to the one setting up the logistics for everything. But I've always believed that person has to be beside, behind the scenes wanting to set up for guys and everything else. And, and I still believe in that. Um, I've had options to go back, back to a shift or something else. I'm like, no, that, that time's not here. This, this is what I need to do with stuff. And it's frustrating because there's no excitement behind it. There's no really cool stories or anything else with stuff. Um, but there's a lot of wisdom and there's a lot of experience behind it. Um, that I think someone that did their career the way you did it. Um, and, and for example, I just, you know, we were just talking about a guy who retired from the city, um, you know, back in 2016, I just had breakfast with him and I was talking, your name came up cause he's like, who's going to be on the next episode. And, uh, I, I was like, well, Chris Laser's going to be on the next episode. And, uh, he said, here's the thing, regardless of what you think about Chris, um, you know, whether you think he's a little crazy or not crazy, I, I mean, I think you're a little crazy, but, <laughs> but, but the guy always went 110%. He always was 110%. Totally agree. Um, and so when you have someone that has that level of experience, they've, they've done the job 110%, and then they're in that position where they're doing the logistics, you automatically gain the respect of the people, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, below you. Um, who are, you know, going to put that plan into action. Like, hey, it, it's not like some guy who just has a bunch of book knowledge. Hey, here's a guy who actually did it, and now he's putting together the plan. Um, I think we can, we can trust the plan, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so, so, yeah, I just, I, I just you know, you've, you've done a lot of training in your career. You talked about it um, at the beginning here. Uh, you trained me. I, I was trying to remember. Do you remember what year we rode together? Was it 2003? <laughs> I try not to remember years in particular because there have been so many. It was probably around there. It was right around there. I'll still never forget the first time I saw you and Garon on the street, if you don't recall. I don't um, Jared Berkeheiser and I were both in drug suppression unit at the time. Um, and him and I, as goofy as we were, we were coming in ridiculously early because we were going to do a, a a heroin detail that morning and you know how it was drug guys at that point you didn't see before like noon right but we're coming in and it was shortly after both him and i were involved in the trend of shootout downtown with stuff so everybody was on edge because of everything that had happened with that but uh we're both driving in like idiots we're listening to the radio and there's a stabbing given out in the first block of king street and it happens to be two guys from the temp job place right there at King and Prince and stuff. And Jared and I come rolling in with stuff and our POVs and all. And I'll never forget because you and Garon are sitting in the cruiser there. There's no other supervisor showed up or anything. And I come over and I've, I've known Garon and the family forever at that point with stuff. And it's funny because Mark looks up at me. He sees the look on my face. He goes, 
Yeah, yeah. Between the two of us, we have six months experience, and we're here on this call in the south as a southeast car. And I'm like, seriously, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> like, and we realized that like that call was a whole lot of nothing or anything, but kind right. of rolled out of it. Um, and that was one of the first encounters I had had with you because you were shortly out of FTO. You're sitting there with Dude, Mark. I had no idea what I was doing. Who was barely himself had any idea what he was doing. And and that's where we were at the time with the department. And we're kind of back there again now with stuff. That's that's just the cycle of the department. But uh, Jared and I got back into the office and we're both just like shaking our heads. And he's like, did you ever think that would be your Southeast car? And I'm like, I can't believe that's what I left it to. Yeah. You know, it. Right. And both of you were good both of you were good guys at that point. Both of you guys had solid reputations. But there was no depth of knowledge of anything. And we were really disappointed because again, there was there was no supervisor, there was no seniority showing up at a call. Again, we had just had a shootout, you know, with a hardcore felon in the middle of downtown that I've seen I've heard all kinds of weapons fire up through, you know all types of cannons being fired and, and the like. And I've never heard what I, what that sounded like when he was breaking loose with that mini 14 downtown that night, that day with things. Um, and here we are like, nobody's here. Like nothing's happening. I'm like, dude, people, um, but it was shortly, it was, it was probably, you know, seven, eight months after that, that I'd start, that I'd rotated then out prior to promotion to Sergeant and coming out to, lieutenant shirk shift and i'll never forget it she's like hey look i want you to ride with this this younger guy um you know he's a pretty good street cop and stuff he's got the 100 level classes and shit down i need you to give him a crash course in the fucking graduate level of stuff of, of how to be a street cop with stuff i'm like who are you talking about and he's like weaver is that the guy that's been riding with garon i'm like he just sat there <laughs> like, um <laughs> And it was, you know, it was funny. I'm like, I, I don't, I, I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know that much. I'm just, I'm a knuckle dragging door kicker at the end of the day with stuff. Um, but you know, she came out and she, you know, she paired you and I up together. And yeah, it was funny because first couple of weeks there's like this apprehension, like, who is this idiot that I'm riding with with stuff? Um, but we're about a month into it and so, and I'll never forget. He's just, you know, your comment. He's you know, for all the stuff we've done, I've never eaten lunch so consistently as I have with you. And I'm like, well, lunch might be a turkey hill hot dog. I'm like, do you ever go 12 hours at home without eating? What is wrong with you? you know, like, but it was just that different. I also found out during that time that you're, one, you can't go without eight hours of sleep and Correct. your preciousness. And two, you absolutely hate the cold. <laughs> well, it's funny you bring that up. I, I don't need eight hours of sleep. I can I can survive on six. Seven is optimal. <laughs> Eight is great. Uh, once I start getting to five hours of sleep, I start I start not operating too well. But um, the cold thing. One of the stories, like one of the things I was thinking about before you came on that I'll never forget is one night. It had to be like two, three in the morning. Had to be single digits, and you wanted to have like this this moment with a crack fiend in the southeast who was selling bootleg dvds and you wanted to try to like get either get crack off of him or 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 talk to him and get him to uh 
see the see see the you know the badness of his ways. And I, you were out there talking to this guy, and I was like, I'm done. I just got back in the car. I'm like, I don't, I don't care. I don't. I'll, I'll watch from the car if you need my help. I'll get out of the car. And the other story I remember about you is, uh, or the other thing I remember is the one night you were having one of your manic episodes, and you were talking. You talked for 12 hours straight. I don't think I said one thing the entire shift, and you just would not shut up. And it got till you know close to quitting time and we were getting gas at the gas station and uh you saw something saw a headline in the newspaper you got back in the cruiser and you just started like flapping your gums again and i was like can you seriously just shut up for five minutes and just give me five minutes a piece and you just like looked at me smirked huh and just went right back at it and i was like i gotta get out of this car <laughs> so I don't even know. I, I think we only rode together for, I think it was basically a summer, maybe three, four months. Yeah, it was like it was like super, months. super long. Um, but I, you know, I, I told anyone I worked with that, you know, had any thoughts on you or, you know, you know how it is. People think they, they know who someone is or, or how they are. I would always tell guys like, listen, Best, best street cop I've ever been around taught me by far. When I look back over my, you know, there's definitely guys I look at that taught me a lot. Guys like Dean and, and, uh, and Drollard and, you know, um, Garon and, you know, all these guys that, that taught me um, so much. Owens was another one, you know, that was working down there. Um, taught me so much, but the the guy who taught me the most and who helped me develop my style and 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 not just how to observe criminal activity but to observe it um and legally interdict it and deal with it and then articulate it on paper so that you win in court like from point a to z um you know was you and, and, uh, so I always, I always appreciate that. I always had a high level of respect for you. And then, you know, at the end of my career, I had the, the, uh, the pleasure of, you know, you actually being my immediate supervisor when I was the uh, sergeant of SEU and, um, yeah, I would, you know, we didn't always agree on everything. I would come in your office and be like, I don't think we should do this. <laughs> well, I think we should. I don't think we should. <laughs> and then we like come to a compromise, but, um, or I just do what you told me to do. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, you know, just, just, uh, the way you did the job, uh, just always like kind of meant something to me and what drove you to do it like that? What made you, what caused you to be so good at being able to recognize criminal behavior, deal with it and, and not just on the street, but then put it down on, on paper and, and see it through court. Like what, what made you so good at that? I go back through a number of things and it, you know, it's, it's funny. I like, <clears throat> I look back through my time at high school and stuff and <clears throat> excuse me, my, uh, my one son doesn't matter the name of him. Find out, you know, as he growing up, he's has dyslexia and dysgraphia. And we go through, we get some testing with him. Smart kid, don't make no mistake, but it was like, 
he was just having trouble with something. So we're going through the testing with stuff and we find out that he has both these issues. So we, you know, we have people that give him, teach him, Hey, here's ways to overcome it and stuff. And I'm laughing because I'm looking at it. I'm like, <laughs> Hey, all those things you're pointing out are the same things. Oh, some of this makes sense with stuff now. And I was never really a stupid kid by any stretch, but I remember like going up through high school, spelling in particular. I was a horrible speller. Um, and again, I'm not a dumb guy, but like I just, for whatever reason, couldn't get, well, that was part of all of that with things. And I remember certain, <clears throat> you know, English teacher sitting there saying, oh, you're just not trying, you're just not working. I'm like, no, I am. It's just not hitting with that stuff. Um, but you came up through and, you know, you find a way to get around those challenges and work work with people. And again, I came up through, like I said, biggest thing is I, I take nothing away. My time with Boy Scouts growing up through, um, people make fun of me and stuff with it. I was an Eagle Scout with, with things. Again, like I said, my dad is still actively involved with Boy Scouts, numerous other, you know, service organizations with things. And that was kind of that, that drive and then what you said, you started to realize, you know, hey, that value of helping people with stuff. And then also understanding at times, hey, this person might need that extra little bit. Now, and being able to interpret the person that needed the little extra bit versus the person who was just lazy. You know, right. who's the person you yell at versus the person you pull off to the side, hey, try this. You know, and work out with things. Um, and, you know, it just, that's, that's kind of how my life came up through. Now, the other part, and I joke about this all the time, I've been a Philadelphia sports fan my entire life. We can lose nothing like anybody can. You know? right. <laughs> so you're used to rooting for an underdog with things. Uh, but all kidding aside, like I said, you, you, learn, you learn that value of, of work finding your way up through things and helping other people with things. Uh, and that's always been part of it. The other part is, you know, again, part of just my entire family that has hit with me uh, comes from a generally military background with stuff with things. As I got older, I started to see the difference between the World War II group of them that was just gung-ho, America is great. I mean, one uncle that his entire house, everything was painted red, white, and blue. The flag always flew. It was brought down every night, put up every night. My house is the same right now. You know, that's how it's brought. The Vietnam area that was kind of like a little, or I'm sorry, the Korea era that was a little like, eh, you know, still sort of, but not quite as much. And then, you know, my dad who actually adopted me, I mean, never knew my biological dad, but guy that I called dad that adopted me grew up in the Vietnam era and stuff and you can see the taintedness with the military because of how everything was with stuff but they still stepped up and did what needed to be done you know it was never an excuse there was never you never sat back and you cried you never felt bad about yourself hey pull your boots up get out and get it done um and you know Part of that is teaching you to stand up for those that can't stand up for themselves. And that <clears throat> that's always resonated with me with things. And then you get into this career. It's a service-oriented type of thing. I actually looked going in the military. My oldest son I adopted shortly out of high school with stuff. Made that a little difficult. Law enforcement was kind of a compromise for me getting into with things. Uh, 
but very early on in the career, I remember going to a class and the instructor standing up there and saying, really good guy, very articulate with things. He goes, you know, and at that point, that was a guy that's probably at my point is, and I am in my career now, sitting there and saying, he goes, you know, I've watched a lot of cop, good cops lose sight over what it is and why we're doing it. And, you know, he pointed out, hey, that whole constitution, the U.S. and the state one is why we're doing this. If you tramp on that, you've now defeated what you were trying to do. Um, you know, and that always stuck with me with stuff. And it, it's tough. I Like, I've watched people walk away with stuff that I knew were absolutely dirty and wanted to go after so bad. And it was always just, you can't cross that line. Um, yeah. I mean, and that was really one of the things you, you taught me, like, um, Hey, no, know when you got something legal and when you didn't get it legal. Like if you, if you push the envelope and you, you know, got something and you're like, you know, this, this ain't going to fly in court, just put it in to be destroyed. You know, right. don't, don't charge the guy. Don't arrest the guy. You know, um, you know, that, that type this, that, that type of mentality. So you talked a lot about the drive and what drove you to it, but was there, I guess like I've been, I've been around some cops who drive down a street and are clueless as to what's going on around them. Not, not a lot, but they're, they're out there. (laughs) Maybe there is a lot, but, but like your ability to be able to drive down a street and Honestly, what it reminds me of is that book, Left a Bang. Um, and I don't remember who wrote that. Do you remember who wrote that? Yes. But there's a book out there, Left a Bang. It, it, it's uh, written by, um, I don't even know if it's written by a military guy, but it's, it talks about this military concept of understanding and recognizing baseline behavior and what is not baseline behavior. So wherever you're at, wherever you're, where if you're in the military, where you're stationed, or if you're in law enforcement, where you work, understanding what baseline behavior is in that area, recognizing when something is not um, operating within that baseline behavior, and then using that to engage uh, with people who are probably engaged in criminal activity. I mean, this book wasn't even out when you were training me, but I saw that with you, you were able to drive down the street and be like, Hey, we need to give that guy a second look. Hey, we need to give that guy a second look. What, how did you, how did you learn that? Did someone teach you that? Or did you just, did you know it from how you grew up? Like how, like for me, I learned it. I learned it from guys like you and some of the other guys I mentioned, I learned it. It it wasn't like instinctive to me. Some of that again was, and I go back much as it's stupid as it sounds, I go back to my time in Boy Scouts. Like Boy Scouts, especially back when I came up through it, really emphasized youth leadership. Um, Yeah, there were adults that were there and stuff, but they really were advisors. Youth ran that organization with stuff. And even as a 12, 13, 14-year-old, as one of the patrol leaders and a senior patrol leader, we actually sat down at the end of each month and had meetings and we planned all the meetings the rest of the month as kids. And then, you know, that went up and the adults looked, yep, checked off, off when it went, but we made those plans with stuff. And you had to learn early on, again, working then at summer camps, I was 
I want to say I was 13 or 14, one of the first years I worked all summer at scout camp, and I was actually the youth leader for the mess hall for Camp Bayshore for stuff. We fed 350 people three meals a day out of there. We had adults that worked in there, but it was us kids kind of running that thing with stuff. And, you know, I, I had to learn quick and early on, everybody works different. What's their motivations? What goes on? And I'll never forget, there was, there was one of the other kids that was working there. And you worked a lot of hours with that stuff. And you got paid nothing. You were just, you were up there, you had a good time and stuff. Right. But I'll never forget him. We're halfway through the summer. And he looked and he goes, hey, not everybody wants to work like you do. And I didn't really understand it at that point. But I thought, okay, we need to adjust some of this. We correct it with things and stuff. But I've always taken that throughout my career with stuff. And there's a lot of guys that don't necessarily work the same, but I've been able to work with because they mean the same thing with stuff. But you start to realize what people's motivations are with things. And again, I didn't, I didn't grow up horribly hard off, but I didn't grow up with a whole lot of stuff either with things. And you learn to work for things, uh, which was a plus with stuff because you learned empathy for people in, in a way with things. And, you know, even through my career, it doesn't mean that I've agreed with what you were doing, but I can understand the situation that you were at. Now, that's not everybody. Don't get me wrong. Some people are just evil. You know, there's right. no question about it. Um, those that think that evil doesn't exist are just delusional. Um, and, you know, they, they can feel that way and they can feel safe because the guys are like you and me, pure and simple. Um, but the average person is just, they're in a crappy spot. You know, and it's sometimes it's an easy, easy answer. You know, and you, you kind of have to guide them otherwise. And I look at the number of people that I've given a second chance to over the career with stuff, with things. And, you know, it hasn't always worked out. Sometimes it does, you know. But you learn to realize, again, like you said, what a baseline is for people in the circumstances that you're at. As a patrolman, I spent most of my time voluntarily in the southeast of Lancaster. And it was nothing. It's totally different now than what it was then. Um, yeah, and Lancaster City itself is totally different than it was then with stuff. And I've joked for the longest time, the early and mid-90s, I mean, Lancaster City was in the seventh level of hell for numerous reasons with stuff. Uh, you know, you had a 40-minute shootout outside a garden court in a parking lot the one night that the police never received a single call about. You get out and there's almost 100 shell casings laying throughout the parking lot and a body laying at the one corner that there's now a memorial garden for that we never received a call about. You know, that knock on wood, that would not even remotely occur today with things. And that's a good thing. You know, absolutely right. a good thing. Um, and there were a lot of guys from our department that, you know, gave, gave a lot over the years for that city to bring it from where it is. Um, you know, you, you lose family, you know, family birthdays, holidays, you name it. Like it does, bad guys don't give a damn what the schedule is and what the calendar is. Right. <laughs> you, you need to be there when the stuff is occurring. Right. Yeah. You know, and you get out, you get there, you get it done. And it's, a, it's a drive. It's a drive to do that. And you know, when you look somebody that's an honest, hardworking person 
that's living in just a crappy block. And that's what they, they can't do anything else. That's the spot that they have. You look at it and you say, this is the person that I'm here for. You know, their rights don't stop because of these idiots down here. They can't step up and defend themselves. That's what I'm here for. Uh, right. I think that's why I get so annoyed with, with some of the, uh, just the vilification of police out there right now and, and some of the things that are being said and, and how, you know, this, this constant drumbeat about how the cops are, are racist. You know, I look at officers like yourself. I look at officers like myself and, and many other officers who work in, in, uh, you know, minority areas of urban, uh, of cities. And they're like literally, you know, doing the job, like trying to help people, help the good people that live in those areas. Um, and they're vilified for it. I just, I just don't get it. I don't understand, um, you know, police officers, regardless of what race they are, but obviously the focus is on white police officers, white male police officers, you know, going into these areas and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, doing really helping a lot of people. Like I, you know, I've, I've, I've told people, you know, if you look at my arrest record, most of my arrests were, were, uh, black and Latino suspects, but that's because of the area I worked in. I worked in the Southeast, but I said, if you look at the majority of the people I helped, it would also be black and Latino because that was the area I worked in. That, that was the majority of the people, um, I was, uh, interacting with every day. Um, so I don't know how you can say just because I'm a white male and I'm a police officer that I'm then racist, um, which, you know, you, you're, you're talking about right now, guys who are in those areas doing it every single day and, and gals too. I don't want to leave the, the females out of it, but, um, you know, every day in those areas working, um, I, I just think it's a shame in our country right now. Well, it's easy. Race is an easy excuse for those that have nothing else to rely on. Uh, yeah, like I said, I voluntarily put myself down the southeast section of Lancaster City, which during my time was predominantly Latino, a lot of it black as well as things. Um, I actually got admonished by a shift lieutenant one night. You go back mid-90s, uh, my partner and I at the time, Lou Darienzo, one of the, one of the greatest street cops I worked with, Bet one of the best partners I ever had. No offense, Weaver, but <laughs> um, but him and I spent years together, and right. it really was we didn't have to talk. We knew what the other one was doing and stuff. Um, we had a shots fired call, three hundred block of South Ann Street. We get down through there. We knew everybody that lived down there, and we come across um, one of the side streets, and we look. There sits a pickup that we don't recognize, and we look. Hey, there's a white guy sitting in that we don't recognize slumped over we get out we start dealing with them here lo and behold this guy actually has two bullet rounds through his back lower back just on opposite sides of the spine half inch either way either of those two he's paralyzed if not dead um, and had we not found him and encountered him when we did he'd have been dead anyway the hospital actually recorded that with stuff we had a shift lieutenant come back and almost essentially started to admonish us because we stopped him because he's a white guy and we're like, yeah, he is. We know he doesn't live there. 
we know at that time that was one of our highest drug blocks one of our problems go through the whole nine yards with stuff i said anybody who actually lives there that's not involved in the drug trade would shake our hands right now um that lieutenant like i said probably one of the most racist individuals i've ever dealt with and if he listens to this he knows who he is i don't need to mention names uh i don't pull pull punches with stuff it's disgusting to me i was raised to believe you know you treat somebody based on their merits i don't care about your skin color because that on unless i'm looking for an undercover officer for very specific details right. your skin color means squat to me uh, your ability to deal with people and move through things and deal with the situation at the time and talk to people is everything. Um, so instead of really Darienzo and I getting accommodation for life-saving, which it should have been out of that one, like I said, we ended up with a knock on our files over it for absolute solid police work with things. Um, neither of us gave a damn. We moved on. We knew what it was. And we, you know, we shook it off with things. But that's how it's been for so long with stuff. Um, when I looked at coming into Lancaster, I looked at going to Baltimore, I looked at going to New York, and I looked at Philly. Philadelphia at the time had a hiring freeze, and you had to live there for a year before you got hired. I'm like, well, I'm not moving to Philly to not know whether I'm going to get hired or not. Um, New York, actually, that was kind of on and off the cuff. My ex at the time wasn't going to let me take her kids up there with me, so I wasn't moving that far. Baltimore, I actually knew some guys that were down there on the job, and they said the same thing. They're like, and these were two black officers. They were like, race relations down here suck. You do not want to come down here. And you flash forward 25 years ahead with the Freddie Gray incident, they didn't get any better. Right. You know, and it's a shame. It's not on the end of the cops. Are there bad cops out there? Yeah, no kidding. Let's just lay that out there. Right. There's bad people in every profession. Let's knock it off. Stop the, you know, garbage oratory and get on with it and move on with it i'm as white as they come i actually did one of the dna tests i am a true mutt i've used that word more than once with stuff i've got blood in me from all over europe and asia <laughs> like when it came back I'm like, eh, no shock yeah okay um so i can truly i can truly use the term mutt and apparently it's not offensive for me any because that's me with stuff that doesn't matter Again, my parents, like I said, would have smacked me upside the head had I been mouthing off. And I look at it, my one son, we had him up at a lacrosse camp. He's like six or seven at the time. And I'll never forget it. He comes over and, you know, he doesn't know any of these people. Hey, that one coach, he's talking about how great he was. And we're like, well, which one? Because there's like eight coaches at the end of the day standing together. And he's like, well, the one over there. Okay, that's helpful. The one with the whistle around his neck. They all have whistles around their neck. And finally, I said, the black coach? Because that's who he's pointing to. And I'll never forget it because he's looking, huh? And he has to take, oh, yeah, yeah. Because he didn't care. It didn't matter. And I don't know that it had anything to do with me. That may have been some of the innocence of youth with stuff. But it was the level of ability that that guy delivered with stuff had nothing to do with that skin color with anything. Um, and that's where the frustration comes with things. You know, you keep hearing this garbage of, Oh, look, it's the flat first Hispanic person to do this first black person to do this. Okay. 
did that actually help them with that job? You know, is the first, we've all been past it, the first black person on the Supreme Court, you know, bench. Did that actually help them? No. What are their qualifications for it? I don't care about your skin color. Step up, stop using it as an excuse, and move on. Every, every nationality has had some type of discrimination against them at some point. You know, there was, like I said, I'm a mutt. There was a little bit of Irish in me. Should I complain and carry on because the Irish up in New York were discriminated against horrifically? Yeah, when this country was first started with stuff. No, I mean, again, my parents laid into me with it. Stop with the excuses. You are you. Step up and actually show something. If you can't show worth to yourself, then shut up. Right. And and that's true. And, you know, I've been that way with my boys. Again, my oldest was in the Marine Corps with stuff. Um, You know, numerous combat tours with stuff. He'll be the first one to tell you. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I don't care what somebody's skin color is. You know, some of the, one of the best friends he has from his, from the island, um, absolute dark skinned black male, one of the greatest guys I have ever met and probably one of the commensurate Marines you will ever meet in your life. He got denied reenlistment going through after eight years in the Corps because of something that happened, basically an underage drinking in the barracks. Weird. A week before he got deployed in a combat tour, shocking, um, with stuff because they were looking to downsize the military with stuff. You know, so unfortunately that didn't work for him. But again, this is one of these guys. He also have two other brothers that I know that he graduated with that I've met. Those guys, I would take it anywhere with me at any given time. I'd give them a job in a heartbeat because they're, they're there, they're true, and they're honest people. Um, you know, I, it, to me, it's just absolutely disgusting with stuff. You know, you hear about this stuff. Oh, we need to have more black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever checkbox you want to put into in law enforcement and more of the community. Here's the problem and the reality that nobody wants to talk about. If I grew up with a bunch of people and now I have to step up and police you, that is one of the most difficult positions to be in in the world. Um, First year of my career, I'll never forget. I stopped the guy from that I went to high school with. It's a good friend. Absolute DUI. And this is back in 1990 before it was like the big push with, with stuff with DUIs. Um, that turned into a knockdown drag out fight. And I watched a lot of friends I had in high school push me away from there. Like the line was drawn with stuff. Um, you know, and I wasn't even working in the immediate jurisdiction that I had grown up in, and right next to it and stuff, but that was tough. So you want to say, you want to take people, especially out of urban environments that grew up close and tight with all of these people throughout their years, and then not ask, oh, how am I going to look the other way when Anthony does this or something? It, it, it's, it's against human nature. It's not realistic. You know, right. it's just, it's stupid. The other part is, oh, I can't police in your community because I'm not the same skin tone you are. Asinine. Um, I met a guy a number of years ago up from NYPD. Stereotypical short little Asian guy. Funny as hell. Uh, I mean, and a great cop as well. He actually oversaw NYPD street crime unit. 
that was given credit, maybe subversively in a lot of ways, for dropping the crime rate from the 90s in New York City across the, across the board with things. Um, but he would laugh, and he would sit there, and he'd make fun of himself. He goes, yeah, I had supervisors that kept wanting me to sign me down to Chinatown. He goes, <laughs> I, I barely speak English, let alone any other language. I stood out like a sore thumb with stuff. He was horrible in that position, absolutely ineffective with stuff. Um, they bounced him out. They put him in charge, of the, again, as a lieutenant of this street, citywide street crime unit, knocking crime, a phenomenal success rate with stuff. And he goes, there were white cops like you that did a better job in Chinatown than I ever could have with stuff. He goes, because they came in, they took the time, they talked to people, they got to know them. Yeah, in Lancaster City, everybody wants to talk about the Hispanic culture center. We have a huge Hispanic population, no kidding. We also have a very large Asian population that nobody wants to talk about because a lot of times they police their own and take care of their own with stuff. I'll be the first to sit there and say, I'm probably one of the few in our department that has walked in fairly regularly to some of the Asian groceries and other stores in that city. And had conversations with people. Not because we had a call. Not because I really wanted the food or anything. I don't understand some of it. <laughs> um, but I'll come in and sit there and talk to them. Right. And walk out. Uh, but nobody wants to acknowledge it. Yeah, you know, like I said. But the difference there is they'll tell their kids and otherwise, regardless of what country or where you came from, it's not an excuse. Step up, do for yourself, and move on. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and, and that's the thing, like best person for the job, um, instead of making uh, skin color and ethnicity primary, make uh, your skills and what you can do. And if you can handle the job, if you can do the job, if you excel at the job primary, um, I think that's, I don't think that's racist. Um, you know, un unfortunately in our, in our day and age, it can be considered racist, but I, I don't get it. I, you, you, I want the best person for the job. I don't care how they look. You know, that's, that's, that's what I want. But unfortunately, that's day and age we're, we're in, I guess. I don't well, know. Well, it's really racist is to look at somebody and say, hey, because of your skin color, you're incapable. Right. And that's absolutely garbage. And so we need to give you a handout. I, I've met people, whether it's in sports, academics, or whatever I've been in, in numerous different races, religions ethnicities, sexual orientation stuff that have blown me out of the water with things. I've also been, you know, blown other people out of the water with stuff in the same category because that had nothing to do with right. that competition or that category at that time. Um, but we don't look at that. We don't, that hasn't become a focus, unfortunately. And I can't say across the board, but in a lot of places, if you look back at 2020, you look across this country, uh, a lot of urban areas in particular, hit with all kinds of street violence, social upheaval, whatever phrase you want to throw out to it. There were few cities, urban areas that the leaders, both police and politicians, looked and said, no, no, we're not doing that. We're not allowing it and put an end to it. And you didn't really hear a whole lot about it. They took their lumps kind of up front with stuff, but they ended it and moved on. Um, 
there was also a lot that made news that that didn't. And cities burned. You know, cities burned, societies burned. Yeah, we we trampled on people and their liberties left and right. Yeah, you know, and it to me that's one of the biggest frustrations in the world. Again, it's been over three decades of doing this job. I haven't given a damn what side of this aisle you sit on with things. You know, the main tattoo on my forearm, there's a reason it's there. You can't see it because we're talking. It, we the people, I've always believed in that. That's one of the things that has been beaten into my head. I've worked events from far left to far right. Every one of them has gotten the same level of service with stuff. Um, you have your right to come out. You have your right to speak. You have your right to sit there and complain about things. But the moment that you stop the freedom of others, it needs to end. Um, you go back to 2020. Again, across this country, the lack of leadership, not only in law enforcement, but from elected officials with things. You know, it doesn't matter whether you like the individuals or not. I have set up and I've run events for numerous groups that I am diametrically opposed to. Most of them would never have known that with things um, because they have the right to come out and do it. Mm -hmm. By the same token, you know, groups that I absolutely agree with, I, I've had numerous meetings with, with them. I'm like, guys, you can't do this. <laughs> um, we will come out and we will crush you. It's, it's that simple. You know, and it's been very frustrating to see in so many levels on so many different things. Um, you know, I, like I said, again, I go back to that one instructor I had decades ago sitting there pushing. He, you know, he said, I've a lot of, watched a lot of good cops stomp on the Constitution in the name of doing their job. And, and that's been tough. I mean, I've, I've watched some bad people just get away over the years and it's graded me. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, again, the moment you step over that line, you're no better than them. You, you know, now with that said, and you've worked with me, you've seen it. I will push that up to the line. I will bend that line to the breaking point. I won't break it, but I'll bend it much further than others. There's guys that will take it. Oh, we can't do this because of this. And it's an excuse to be a lazy ass. Right. I'll leave it at that. Lazy ass and not do anything with stuff. I don't have the time or the patience for that. Uh, yeah. You want to be a cop? Welcome to the job. Right. And figure out how you can do it. Figure right. out, figure out under, under your policy, under Pennsylvania, you know, under the law of the state you're in, under the constitution, like, how you can do it. That's part of being a good cop is figuring out, hey, I got this guy in front of me who I know is doing, uh, you know, whatever crime, you know, how can I legally make it work to, to, to figure it out and, and get him in handcuffs? Um, um, you talked a little bit about leadership there. Um, obviously, you know, you and I have had, you know, several conversations, uh, even before we went online, uh, for this episode about leadership, lack of leadership in law enforcement. Why do you think it's such a, I mean, I generally, I feel like leadership in our country in, in every job and every level of employment is lacking, but you know, for, for our sake and, and what we're talking about in law enforcement, it seems to be a, 
I don't know. It it seems to be lacking, and I I I don't I don't think it's it's just a a God given gift to be a good leader. I th- I think sometimes that's helpful, but I think it can be learned, and I think you know it can be uh, uh, encouraged and and grow. Like I think you can grow as a leader. Why do you think it's such a huge lacking uh, and so lacking in law enforcement right now? It's not just law enforcement; it's everywhere. Being right. a being a leader is, is not easy. Um, everybody, it's you know, you've seen the memes out and stuff. Everybody wants to be a gangster until it's time to do gangster stuff, and then nobody. Yeah, you know, it's the same thing with leadership. Everybody wants to be a leader. Everybody wants to be that instructor up in front of the room and stuff until it's time to do all the work that gets put into that with stuff. Um, and being a leader means sometimes you're going to piss some people off. Pure and simple. Um, I like you mentioned it earlier tonight with stuff. Like I said, I think you and I have, have had a great working relationship over the year. We have never agreed all the time. <laughs> and I know you've, you've left my office or I've left yours at times where you've been pissed off at me. Um, and you know, I just walked off and I was like, there were sometimes it's like, well, you know what? He's just wrong. He has to get over it. And sometimes it was like, I agree with him, but this is our marching orders and we're going to do it. Um, you know, you may remember 2020, I, you know, I'll never forget one of the, one of the briefings I gave, it wasn't just to your unit, but everybody were coming back in one night and, you know, it was after having an operational command for so many nights and, and just overall frustration of stuff and sitting there looking and saying, guys, listen, these are what our orders are. Um, whether we like them or not, doesn't matter. We're going to get them done. We may all die together here with this tonight, but we're going to get them done. Let's step up and go out and get it done. And that was one of the tougher speeches I had to give the guys, but it was blatantly honest. And everybody in that room, I think, was like, I want to yell at you, but damn it, that's right. <laughs> uh, because that's what we were given at the time. You know, and you move forward with it. There's been a lot of times where I've absolutely agreed with orders and we've been able to move forward with my easy and stuff. But, you know, we get through as a society where, you know, we're on almost second, almost third generation now where everybody's the most important person in the world. And, you know, you get a participation trophy because you showed up and the like. And I know there's been all kinds of jokes about it, but that's just not reality. That's not how life is. It's not not reality in any shape or form. Um, yeah, and I put it back to the athletic spectrum. I've I've worked with athletes of all ranges of things, from you know just youth sports for decades with stuff, and I love working with kids, watching them yeah you know, develop and come up through in different times, up to Olympic athlete level athletes that I've known and like. Some of them, there's been a certain amount of God given talent to it, you know. I would love to have been able to play inside linebacker for the Philadelphia Eagles. I'm 5'8", 180. It ain't going to happen. <laughs> I, I get it. But those guys, even with those talent, still needed to work hard with stuff. Um, a, lot of, a lot of females from you know, previous Olympic field hockey teams that I know and stuff and watch, great, amazing nat- natural athletes, they worked their asses off to get to that level. And that was the thing is they, they always worked up through that. And true leaders do that. You know, you're like you said, you're not just, you may be born with certain attributes with things, but 
being a leader isn't necessarily one of them. It's, it's a combination of things. You learn honesty, integrity, calling it how it is, you know, taking care of people, empathy with things. That comes from your environment as you grow up. It comes from a learned issue. And I don't care if you're in law enforcement or not, taking the time to learn and de- develop professionally with stuff. Um, you know, most guys that just know me on a surface level with stuff, hey, I'm a knuckle-dragging door kicker, you know, you know, by nature with stuff. I always loved the tactic ends of things, but I always knew there was more to that. You know, I've always read, I've always studied, I've always tried to learn from other people with things with, with stuff. I, you know, I'm much better now at the supervision end than I ever was as a first-year sergeant with stuff. 13 years into a career, you know, as a patrolman until I got promoted as a sergeant. Thank God it wasn't before that because I thought I knew something. I didn't know squat. I was still learning how to sit there and drive a car and, you know, put a seatbelt on with stuff. Um, but it, it was good because it learned, it taught me that humility, how to work up with it. And it doesn't matter whether it's law enforcement or what profession. The key attributes to leadership are all the same. You got to be honest. You got to be willing to step up for the people that, you know, you work for. And, you know, I, I know I've told you this before with stuff. I mean, from a hierarchical chart, you look at it. Yeah, I have subordinates, people that work for me and stuff. I've never looked at it that way. The further up I go, the more people I have that I'm working for. Um, and if I'm not willing to work for them, then I have no place in those positions with things, with stuff. You know, but you have to be a student of whatever profession it is. The only difference in law enforcement is, at times, the speed with which those decisions and actions have to occur. Most professions, yeah, I, I just joked about it with one of my sergeants the other day. Something came up and group from outside, oh, we want this. Well, we need an answer right now. I'm actually in the middle of a traffic commission meeting texting them, and I'm like, huh, same answer I give it any salesman. I'm not defending freedom. And, or not defending democracy, and I'm not saving a life on this decision. It'll wait till tomorrow. You know, I'm not making it right now as a snap one. Um, and but I'll those was put off. But, but those types of decisions have to be made. And they have to be made. And that's where becoming that student of it ahead of time, being willing to look back and say, you know, early on, especially in a career, I'm like, <laughs> I screwed that up. <laughs> hey, and Darienzo and I, like I said, we had a great relationship with stuff with him and there was more and him and I were two of the most brutal people you will ever meet with each other with things with stuff like something would happen didn't matter how minor we'd be in the car talking about it and we're like let's not do that that way again <laughs> we got lucky lucky is how you buy lottery tickets not how you do this job um but we also would play a game all the time and I know I passed this on to you at times where we're driving around and again different context of the city than it is now but you'd hit coming up to into certain drug blocks and stuff and you'd see three guys on the corner at two in the morning and one of us would look at the other give me three pc reasons to stop these guys and you better be able to rattle them off like that before we're out in the car with them right you know you didn't make it up afterwards you better have it beforehand right um but that led me to my ability with critical instance and stuff. And again, throughout my career, yeah, I've had a propensity for dumb stuff happening around me for whatever reason. Um, but you learn, you learn to be able to deal with that with stuff. And, you know, now anymore, 
It's not that the adrenaline dump doesn't come when something major happens, but you learn how to address it, control that, and focus it towards things. And that's where a lot of professions, they just don't have that end of things with stuff. Right. It's not selling them short. You know what? Good for them. They don't have to deal with that with things. But, you know, sometimes we do. But the times you don't, that's when you have to take the time to explain things to guys. Hey, this is why we're doing it. And that's, I think, where a lot of times in leadership and law enforcement, we fall short. Uh, I'm explaining it for two reasons. Because one, I want you, Anthony Weaver, when the critical incident happens, and I tell you, watch that door. Nobody comes in or out. I don't want you questioning me. You're like, if he's not explaining it, there's a reason. Right. He knows what he's doing. Nothing's coming in and out of this door. Um, you know, the other part of it is, and the bigger picture of it is, you're replacing me someday, you know, or someone else is taking my spot. And I want the person that takes my spot. I don't want like whoever replaces me in my current position to be down below where I was. I want them to be up here because I want them above where I was and I want them to be better for guys out on the street and taking care of them. Yeah, you know, and it's it's got to be a, a certain selflessness out of things and we lose that at times. Further up you go in the chain, sometimes the more guys want pats on the back. Further up and you go in the chain, you're done getting pats on the back. Right. Um you know, and I've pointed out more than once and I know I've hurt feelings of people that have been above me over the years. You know, one of the few accolades I'll give myself, I'm one of the most decorated lieutenants this department has ever had, even including commendations as a lieutenant for stuff with things. Okay, it, that to me, hey, it's great. It's nice to have those accolades. One of the greatest accolades I've ever had was at one point, 84% of the supervisory and specialty positions in that department have worked for me before with things. You know, that to me, are the, my current boss has worked for me before. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that to me means more than... Yeah, it's a, it's a huge accolade. I think another huge accolade is, is the fact that, and one of the reasons why I'm talking to you about leadership stuff is that, um, you know, in 2020 and uh, um, your, your, some of your peers and subordinates put you in for a leadership award. Um, so I think anytime that you're a leader and people who are your peers or subordinates um, are, are putting you in for a leadership award says a whole lot more than if people above you are, are putting you in for that. So what do you think, in, in your opinion, what is the most important attribute of a leader in law enforcement? Or maybe not even law enforcement, just period. What do you, what do you think is the most important? Honesty and integrity. And, and that's a huge scope of issues with things. And sometimes that means, you know, you do what's right, even though you're going to take your lumps. Um, you, you know, it's, that's how it is. You know, I, I mean, I keep getting from guys at work and stuff. Oh, you could walk away anytime now from the career and stuff. Yeah, I could. That's, I said, that hasn't changed me. Um, and it's funny because the few guys that have, are still around the department that have been around for a while will laugh. They're like, yeah, because you haven't said how it is since like day one. And I'm like, no. And I remember going into my first promotional interview for sergeant's position. And at the time, the training sergeant looking at me and saying, hey, remember, 
Tell them what they want to hear, not what you have to say. And I, I, I mean, I can picture it right now as though you're him and stopping and turning and looking and say, if that's what it takes, I'll be a 25-year patrolman without any regrets. Right. And I walked into that interview and I laid it out. And the three captains that were doing the interview at the time, at that time I was union president and over the six months prior to it had had grievances, not based on me, but on other people against all three of them. That was the highest oral interview score I had ever got besides my lieutenant's promotion with stuff later on. Um, and like I said, there was no punches pulled. He's right. And I will get, and I give all three of those captains and they were old school captains with stuff. I'll give all three of them credit. They easily could have gigged me. <laughs> yeah. You know, and submarine things with stuff. Um, and they didn't, they, they gave honest evaluations with it. And I have had the utmost respect for the three of them out of that time. And, you know, it, it was something that kind of was an eye opener with stuff. And again, throughout my career, I've had, I've had a few really good supervisors with things that, you know, that, I mean, ones that would just scream at you and yell at you when you screwed something up. And even if you didn't screw up, they thought you did, you'd scream at, eh, no, I messed up some other stuff, so I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> um, but the moment that yelling was done, it was done and, and you moved on from it. Um, I've had a lot that, that I would put as average and nothing. That's not that a bad thing. It's just, that's how most supervisors are. They're average with stuff. And there's been a few that have just been horrific, horrific. Um, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, I mean, I'll let it go at that. You know, it's, I mean, We've had some internal strikes with stuff. And I've told you, you and I've talked about it. 2020 had its own share of, you know, stresses and stuff, not only socially and, you know, across the board nationally and stuff. I had a lot going on personally and, and the like and stuff and got through it. Okay. Hey, it is what it is. Um, yeah, physically as well that year and everything else. 2021 internally for our department, I found more stressful than any year I've ever found in my career. And a lot of that's, uh, leadership based, I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's obvious, you know, before we started recording here and, and, uh, you know, as we've been talking, you've had a long career, you've been through a lot, you've seen a lot. Um, how, how has this job, how has this career, how has this calling changed you? Um, it's tough to put words to that. You and I have talked about it, and I, I've tried to talk to it about, about a lot of people. Um, again, I've always been service-oriented coming up. I'd say when I first came into this career, you know, it was, there was a certain level of trust and, or, you know, belief in people with things. There's a certain amount of cynicism that's come over the years with that, and that's because you are lied to on a regular basis um, used and abused. And from those on the street, as I've you know gone through my career and got mature with their career and stuff, I can expect that and understand it. I understand what their motivations are, where it's coming from and stuff. The things that have really crushed me over the years have been the internal times when I've had either the agency or individuals in the agency basically turn on you for their own personal service. Um, this is a brotherhood organization. 
And yes, get past it. Um, it's still acceptable in the English language. When I say brotherhood, it means men and women. Masculine refers to both. <laughs> you know, it's, um, you know, and I've worked with, with great cops on, on both ends of the spectrum. I mean, one of the, I don't like the word trailblazers, but one of the early ones on, Sue Winter, one of the better street cops I had worked with early on was stuff. I mean, her and I worked great together. It's fun. Um, that has nothing to do with, with it with stuff. But when you, when you have that back turned on you or somebody self-serving intentionally cut out at you, it crushes on the belief system. But that notwithstanding, not so much the criminals, the victims that you go and talk to and deal with, that crushes you over years. Um, you and I have talked about it, and I know you put it back in you know, one of the points of this. There's only a certain amount of human suffering most people can involve with. Um, most of my career, like I said, has been out in the street. I've loved it. I've worked, I'm one of the few guys we've had that's worked every division, every end of the spectrum within our department. Um, I've, I've always loved patrol. I've always, I've said, I, I'm one of those guys. I like getting that first call, getting in there. To me, success was making order out of chaos so that CID can come in and then take whatever steps they need from there with things. Um, and even with CID guys, I mean, Nate Nichols getting ready to retire here very shortly. Great investigator. A uh, lot of respect for him and stuff. The department will lose tremendously from his his ability as an investigator. Mm-hmm. Nate, get over it. I'm done sucking up to you now. Um, <laughs> but seriously, you know, he spent a lot of times working with victims over the years with stuff with things. And take nothing away from that. But it's a different context at times than seeing that unvarnished raw response from somebody when they've just lost a loved one no matter who it is let alone you know an infant with Mm -hmm. things um you know or even a young child with with stuff and you're the one there and their ire turns on you you can't blame them i i can't take it personally because they need to be angry at somebody at that point. Um, you know, so you kind of sit back. You can only digest so much of it because you still have to control a scene and deal with things. Still have a job. Right. And I'll never forget, you know, years ago as a sergeant, yeah, 300 blocks South Prince Street, homicide, it's a cluster of a scene. We think we then have a barricaded gunman with hostages in the building with stuff. Um, it was like the worst possible scenario you have with stuff. And I'm directing that while running that, while being part of the crisis team and stuff. It's how you should never actually run things, but we didn't have people for it. And directing guys to arrest the stepdad of the kid who just got killed, who really had nothing to do with anything, who is literally laying on the ground next to my feet because I don't have anywhere else to go as a crisis team leader to go into this house, but arresting the stepdad because he can't get in and get down to down to his his stepkid um and then you know that was a saturday night and then getting a call from the mayor the next day hey we need to meet with his family and stuff and my hat's off to mayor gray at the time he was very early on in his his tenure with things he talks to me and i'm a nobody at that point i mean we know each other with him as a defense attorney and stuff but hey what happened you know and i told him he goes okay hey it, 
there was no pressure to make anything go away or deal with it. It was just, okay, I get it. He was 100% in support of us, but I have to go and sit and meet with that family the next morning on, for me at that point, about three hours of sleep. I know that's not enough for you. That's normal for me. But <laughs> you know, you're still coming in trying to fire on all synapses and stuff and look at them and say, why I just arrested you because you were at the scene where your kid was killed. Um, and at that point, my kids weren't quite that age with stuff. But I'm like, I, I get it. Uh, and we had full intentions of, of dumping that charge at the time. And it worked out as a very good conversation. I give Rick Gray, again, absolute credit for that because he was directing it with stuff, never sold us as an apartment or me or anybody out, uh, but absolutely had empathy for that family with stuff. And I'm like, look, and you know, t- the stepfather's credit, 100% you know, credit again with it. He goes, hey, I'm sorry. He, he, and I'm like, dude, I get it. Yeah, I said, but we had to deal with it. And it was a very good conversation with stuff. And those are the conversations that were just the honest conversations that we're just not seeing now with too many different things. Um, yeah, we had an officer involved shooting at the end of 2020 with stuff, younger officer from our department. Amazing job. Mm-hmm. Tactically with that, mentally with stuff. Um, you know, I had just gotten hope well, down at my future wife's house at that time, came back in that night. I'm on the phone with things, with stuff. Uh, you know, it's a very volatile situation with stuff. I remember talking to that officer that night. And I remember talking to him. I said, hey, is there anything you could have done different? Well, I said, yeah, the thing you could have done different would have been getting stabbed. How's that work for you? Um, ignore all of this. And to his credit, like, he sat there, and I felt his pain because he can't come back out and help the rest of the department. He knew what the rest of us were going to go through with stuff. Right. And I remember looking at him and said, hey, trust me, this is the night we're done. We're done playing patty cake. Um, we are going to end this tonight. And you know that was one of those where, from my position that I had at the time, I actually had made the decision. I didn't really care what came from Chief Berkeheiser, who I've come up through with and at that point had a, a lot of respect for and worked in every position with, or for our mayor or city council at the time. We were going to move as we needed to that night. Um, and we did, you know, and there was an understanding, quite frankly, between the chief and I that this was probably the beginning of the end. Well, it wasn't the beginning of the end, but this was the nail in the coffin for him with things. Um, but we did what we should have. And it was not just open sledgehammer force or anything we had very specific targets very specific goals very controlled massive response with stuff and you know what and i mean you saw nationally we were the national child of how to deal with civil disturbance and quelled it in 24-hour period yeah and it ended and i you know i won't get into operational specifics about it it's immaterial um but we cut loose and you know that kind of led to that and really that whole summer like you said the the leadership award i found out about that probably two three months after the award was actually given out to somebody else was stopping okay whatever you know that's not why i'm here but well lieutenant mccormick recently promoted at that point came in the one night and actually sat down in my office and stuff and said hey i just want to let you know and kind of laid out that he was the one that put it in 
but why? Um, and like you said, that meant more to me, you know, than having gotten the award or anything else. And right. one of the things, you know, he put, he goes, look, we were in a shit show most of the summer. You were there for it, sucked. Mm-hmm. Um, there were things that were diametrically opposed to everything I've believed in my entire life and career, everything I've watched through three administrations, two Democratic, one, one Republican, that would never have allowed to occur with things. Um, you know, that we sat until we, you know, we finally moved and, and did what we had to. Uh, but his comment was, he goes, you know, one of the things was that I constantly got from guys was, he's here tonight, regardless of what we do or don't do, we're going to be all right. And I'm like, all right, hey, that you know, it makes me feel good. He goes, no. He goes, you have no idea. There were two nights we were bunkered in our police station that you had basically made this like a annex in Beirut. And, you know, we've all seen the photos with stuff. Right. Um, but you had a very clear op plan of if we have to give this building, this is how we get out. However, here's what we are doing instead of. Um, yeah. And that, like I said, that that meant more to me than anything. Um, yeah. You know, pass me over for whatever you want. So be it. Um yeah. You know, I can look myself in the mirror at the end of the day and at the end of a career, and I can know several things. I've never taken a dime that wasn't mine. I've never gotten into a physical altercation or gotten into a fight with somebody that didn't ask for it with stuff. And you know what? I've never abused the position that I've had, either with the guys that I've worked with or the people out in the street. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think anyone listening to this can just hear the, the emotion about, you know, 2020 and, and what we went through with that. Uh, it was, it was, uh, extremely demoralizing. I can't imagine some of these agencies, these larger agencies and some of the stuff they were dealing with. I think of Portland a lot. I think of Chicago, what those guys are going through in Chicago right now. Um, and, uh, I mean, Though when you when you go through things like that and and you you feel that level of stress and demoralization really when you're told that you can't do anything to stand down uh, when you know you shouldn't be standing down um, those things affect you uh, I think you were also talking about you know just dealing with victims uh, you know every single shift uh, you know over all your years in law enforcement um, I don't. It's hard to describe what that's like, but you you are actually in very intimate situations with people that you don't know, and you cannot properly help them deal with it. And you can feel the pain. You can you're you're there. Like you see like the blood, you see the guts, you see the the pain, you see the tears. You you like are in physical contact with people sometimes, like family members who. You know, you're trying to keep from going into the room where the victim is because you need to protect the scene or, you know, you hear, you know, you're, you're there, you're, you're in a very, uh, emotionally charged, intimate situation with people you don't know, and you cannot process it because you have a job to do. And that wears on you. 
like over the years that really, really wears on you. You don't, I don't even think you realize how much it wears on you. Um, but it really wears on you and it, and it'll like, it'll seep out here and there. You try to keep it, keep a lid on it. Um, but it'll seep out here and there. And, and then sometimes you'll, you'll be dealing with someone or you're watching something on TV or, and it'll seep out and you're like, what, what's wrong with me? Like, you know, why is this affecting me? Uh, so, so much, you know, um, you know, just the other day on the, on the street, I dealt with a a nine-year-old and like, it really affected me. And it was like, it was a simple call, but, but talking to him and having him tell me his story and why he was where he was and why I was there, like it affected me. And I was like, why is this, like, why is this affecting me? Like, this isn't that big of a deal, you know, but I think it's just all the years of it. You didn't, you know, you, there's no way for you to not, for it not to have an effect on you. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, and again, it's one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast, just to bring a little bit of light to it. Let guys such as yourself come on officers such as yourself come on and, and, and talk about it and talk about the toll that, um, that takes on you, um, you know, and, and the toll it takes on your, on your families. And, and, uh, you know, I know this is a pretty personal question, but how, how have you seen that? How have you seen this job affect, uh, your family and, and, and how have you dealt with that over all the years? I could have dealt with it better. There's no question. Um, you know, and that's, to my three, you know, three boys, I've, I've told them to like I said, the oldest one, you know, it's funny because again, at his age now with his experience with the Corps and combat tours and stuff, we have a lot of unspoken similarities that we can dis- don't even have to discuss and understand. Um, you know, the middle one now married, has kid career and stuff and all he's starting to get, oh my God, I see what the stresses are and stuff and feel it. Youngest one, still in college. He's still living the great life with stuff. Like, <laughs> eh, I still think you're an idiot. Um, but you could see the disassociation that comes, not just with them, but your family overall. Because you start to sit back and an emotional detachment becomes the, e- I shouldn't say easy, the necessary way to deal with things. Um, and, you know, You've heard it. You've had a lot of training and stuff, and they'll tell you, oh, when you're done working, turn it off and go home and stuff and all. Well, I I don't know how you do that with stuff. Um, And especially, you know, like I said, the push right now is we want to recruit people within that community to be cops with stuff. Okay. If I go home in the immediate yours, and I lived in the city for a number of years with stuff, when I go home, I don't get to turn my guard down because the bad guys that I've been dealing with don't stop after eight, 12 hours. They're, they're doing that all the time. Uh, doesn't mean decent people aren't decent all the time, but that's not who we're dealing with typically, unfortunately. Uh, so you feel that. The other part is, you know, I, I mean, I've been first in on a number of SID deaths, you know, and legitimate ones several of them where we don't know why the kid died it's an infant and their body just couldn't keep going for whatever reason a couple of them where you know the parents thought it was a great idea to have the kids sleep in the bed with them and they happen to roll over 
Those are horrible scenes. You know, that parent feels horrendous. What do you say to him at that point? Um, you know, throughout the career, numerous homicides and stuff, you're dealing with victims. You know, two beheadings in my career. You know, that that's almost unheard of for a lot of people with stuff. And dealing with, in one case, the suspect right outside who, again, I will never forget, you know, his demeanor. I mean, you want to talk about a shark and shark eyes. This guy had literally just cut this guy's head off, was the one that called 911, tried to cover it, and is standing out there talking. I'm like, and you come in, find him, and you're standing in a, a room full of blood and this person with a head off. Hey, and you have to think from the legal aspect. We need to go out. He can't go anywhere. We, you know, <laughs> but I also have to start thinking, what were the conditions of the windows, the doors, everything else I'm going to get hit up with later on with things? Um, you know, that, that all, starts, all starts to wear on you. I mean, I can't tell you the number of DOAs I've been to that I've had lunch while I'm sitting there waiting for the coroner next to the person. Um, you know, particularly brutal homicide eons ago at this point at convenience store duke and liberty street guy actually was a manager of the store came back nicest guy you could ever meet in the world with stuff um had actually come in to cover for one of his other employees with stuff three teenage kids came in and for next to nothing in there shot and killed yeah you come in you see him like i just talked to this guy hours ago yeah and here we are two hours at the scene ordering subs from the convenience store up and around the, you know, the bridge because we've also worked for 10 hours and we know <laughs> that night in particular, I was there for 27 hours working that case. Um, you know, there's no way that doesn't affect you or anybody else. I don't care who you are. And the more you care about people, the more it just, it draws you in. And it's very difficult. And one of the toughest things is to realize you can't save everybody. And that first person that you kind of have to cut loose and almost say, turn your back on, but say, I, I just don't have this for you. It, it sucks a bit of that soul out of you with stuff, with things. Um, you know, and we talk, I mean, we talk about longevity of the career and stuff. You know, nobody should be in this career as long as I've been. I'll be the first to say it. It's, it's it, it's horrible um, in some ways. It's also the most rewarding thing you can right. ever do. And I've likened it. I've joked about it as stuff with child, you know, with having kids and stuff. I've told my kids, I'm like, it's the most rewarding frustration you'll ever have. <laughs> right. um, and it is, you know, especially as you start to see them growing, you know, again, minor with being older and stuff and being out and, you know, making their own lives with stuff. It's like, great for you. That's fantastic with stuff. You have no idea what I gave up the first 20 years of your life. Um, and I wouldn't change any of that for, for a second. I wouldn't change anything of the, my career with stuff either. Uh, you know, when you have somebody that 15 years after the fact, you don't remember who they were and they see you out at the mall and you're not even working and they're like, hey, how's it going? Talk oh, do you remember when you locked me up? Thank God it was the best thing because it got me off of, you know, got me on a trail. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I remember you. Okay. And and my memory's pretty good for most of the stuff with job, but I'm like, there's been people like, I have no idea who you are. But, you know, you hear these accolades from people because 
you weren't Mr. Nicey Nice. You know, you know what? You drew the line and you said you crossed over it and you forced me into this stuff. Um, and that's where you get it. And at the time, this was the person who screaming, yelling, hated you, sued you. Family was coming in and, you know, chastising you right. over no end with stuff. Um, you know, it's like, okay, well, you know, it, it all comes around the long run with stuff. The unfortunate part is it's tough for a lot of guys to have that longevity. You know, that, yeah. that's the tough part, you know, because you don't see that fruition for a long time. And, you know, you talked about it with leadership and law enforcement. Like, it, you can sit there and try and do, you can do everything right for a long time, but you don't, you don't see that till after you're gone. And I, you know, I've joked with that for guys over the years and stuff. Like a lot of the stuff I'm hoping I put in place and I do, and even from a logistics end, the fruition won't come till after I'm gone. And, and I don't care what officer gets credit for it as long as it works for guys and we have something a little bit better than we had before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, it there's no way it can affect your family. Um, there's no way that you, I don't know of any, any officer who's able to like completely turn it off and just go home and just, I mean, some guys are better at it than other guys, but either way it, it affects your family. So yeah, man. And, and for you, you've been through a lot. Like for me personally, one of the most impactful things that, that happened in my career involved you. It was like, right, right after we had, uh, uh, you know, we were together, we were partners for a while. You got out. This was one of the other stories I remembered about you. And uh, you were you were over in the southwest side of the city. I was still over in the southeast. And uh, you you pulled a vehicle stop. The guy purposely ran over you. And uh, I'll never forget it. And I, I think I went uh, over Prince Street on Farnham at probably 70 miles per hour. I didn't I didn't care. That night sticks in sticks in my head. Uh, I I think I roll. I don't even remember if I rolled past the scene. I know someone got there before me and said you were you were okay. Um, I might have rolled through the block. I was proud of the fact that I pulled over a car that matched the description. It wasn't the right car, but that was a bad night for those people in that car because I was not exactly very professional. But um, <laughs> that was that, that was that was a rough night. Um, I had recently come back out to the street from doing narcotics work for years with stuff. And it was funny because people outside of the profession, you know, my, my wife at the time, they'd be like, oh, you're probably happy he's out of narcotics and all. And, <laughs> and a, again, her at the time, commensurate cop's wife, she's like, it's not like TV. Drug work is all organized. These guys, and you, you've run the unit, you know it, you know, you, you don't take unnecessary risks with stuff. Out, you know, out on the shift, guys that are in uniform, out in departments, especially like rural departments, my hat's off to every day of the week because they don't deal with stuff every day. But when it hits, it's you. There's right. nobody else there. Um, you know, unfortunately, we had a push at that time where we had gotten rid of two-man cars. We wanted all one-man cars with stuff. I've never been a fan of it. Some of that was my my history. Again, like I said, my at that time, with Darienzo and I working together, I said, we, you know, we ran and we owned the Southeast with stuff. Um, loved it. I was back out. I was by myself. It started as a simple traffic stop that escalated. 
radio traffic was above what we could, couldn't get out on it. And very long story, I short, I ended up in a really bad spot and, you know, he ran his car up and over me. Um, it hurt <laughs> to say the least. Um, you know, I remember laying there on the street and taking that deep breath. And it, it was funny because, you know, you know me, if we're off the air, we're not in a professional context. I have a sailor mouth. I, I, you know, I can use that F word as every type of word in the English language in one paragraph and convey a message with things. Um, yeah, that night there wasn't a single profanity in any of the radio transmissions. There wasn't anything else with it, but I, I'll tell you while I'm laying there, it was that painful. I actually couldn't see more than a foot in front of me. I remember laying in the street, gun tucked up in my chest, grabbing my radio and thinking, if this guy comes back to finish this, I'm waiting until he's on top of me in the first round and I'm putting it right wherever that's coming from. And, you know, getting on the radio and taking that deep breath and giving it out and stuff. Um, you know, and that whole night, I mean, that was, that was a long, that was a long night because I didn't know what damage was done. I thought this might be a career ender for me. Um, you know, it was good to see guys from the shift sitting there with stuff. It was good that I had a plan in place with my family, quite frankly, uh, so that they knew kind of what was going on. It made it a little bit easier for them at that point in time with things. Um, but, yeah. you know, and then you put it into context. Frankly, they never charged the guy that, that ran me over. I, I know the name of who it was. Never be able to prove it in court is what it is. Um, two weeks after I was back out in the street, probably shouldn't have still been yet, but back out in the street, we actually have an ambulance call at his baby's mom's house. Uh, we get there and I get, I get credited with saving his, his kid because his kid got into his drug stash and OD'd on it. They tried to pass it off as, oh, he got a hold of some of that liquid lamp oil and drank it and stuff. I, like that, that's not the reaction of this kid. And I'll never forget grabbing that kid from mom, handing it to another young patrolman who showed up, like, put him in your car, get him up to LGH now. It's an opioid, opioid overdose. And the family freaking out on me. I'm like, just go. And we get up, and that's when uh, HIPAA was just starting to kick in. Nobody knew what to do with it or anything. And we get up there, and the ER doc's like, ah. Well, if I was looking at something and he opens this big desk reference and he points and, you know, same thing. We, we knew what it was. This kid got. Fast forward 24 hours later, we have a shooting because weird. Somebody lost their drug stash out of it. Uh, Sam Gatchel, lieutenant detective at the time, calls me. He goes, hey, what's with this report and stuff and all? I'm like, hey. He goes, hey, between you and me, you don't know this is the family. And this is probably a supplier that ran you over. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So, I mean, that's, that's the turn you have to be able to make. Right. Stuff. Um, and that's the, and, <laughs> and again, that's the stuff cops are doing every single day. And, you know, they're just demonized in the press as being like these like robots that just want to go out and beat people. I, I, it, it just makes no sense to me. You know, I, you know, and, and maybe it, maybe it's because we've done a, a poor job as a profession, uh, 
explain to people what we do. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe part of the blame is on us, but um, you know, I think a lot of it too is people don't understand what we do. Well, there's a certain amount of blame back to us, but you can't explain expect the average person to understand what we do. And it's not because we're any better or anything. And I don't think I'm better than any other cop. There's thousands, if not tens of thousands, of guys that have had careers the same as me, well above me with stuff throughout the years. You, you deal with it, you address it, you, you, you know, you move on. Um, but as law enforcement, we're horrible in just putting out certain messages. Right. Again, I don't expect the average lay person to understand the decision factors and the personal We're really good trauma. at TikTok videos though right now. <laughs> I knew that would get you. Get you. Anyways, continue with your thought. What you don't see is me cringing horribly right now. Um, again, there's a time and place for a certain amount of it, but you don't take away from, you know, at the end of the day, our job, our job, our base job is deal with human chaos and suffering. And you can't take away from that. I'm not saying that the other parts aren't good. And, and you've seen me. I've, I've overseen numerous specialty units over the years. I've been worked with special, numerous specialty units. I agree with them. I agree with that context with stuff. Uh, but I also don't, I, I guess to put it into context, one of the things I've always said that I look forward to when retirement comes for me is not seeing the things I see and not knowing the things that I know. I used to always joke, I want to be able to pick the newspaper up and think that's what happened. Okay, newspaper's a thing of the past. I want to pick my phone up you know, and flip through the social media of the day and think that's all and that's actually what happened. Um, because those that are actually there and doing it no, that couldn't be further from the truth in a lot of cases, unfortunately. With that said, some of our local media, I will absolutely give kudos to. Um, excellent. Compared to national media across the board, phenomenal. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll name them right out. WGAL has always been exceptional with things. More than once, I know we've had to reach out to them. And just the other day, we had a shooting not far from McCaskey, GAL was the only one who showed up with the camera crew. They have all their films. I talked to them and stuff. After the fact, I realized, oh, wait, they were filming when we brought a witness back for an ID. Our PIO, our public information officer, was able to reach out to them and say, hey, look, this is the guy. This is the cruiser they should be in. Can you not show that part of the video? Absolutely. There's been multiple times in my career that we've done that with that outlet and other local ones with stuff. doesn't mean we didn't give them other stuff, but I'm like, hey, don't, can you respect the privacy of this person? And they did it. There was no news value out of it with anything. Um, you know, others, and unfortunately some longtime local ones, mm -hmm. I can't say the same for anymore. They've become shock news media outlets. Um, and they just, they really don't care about what, the facts and the truth are anything it's it's that instantaneous value and you can only fault them to a certain amount societal norms have gotten to that yeah <laughs> um but that also wears on guys you know it's tough to sit there and say and you know you've been involved in critical insight i've dealt with with other guys involved in shooting i said listen you need to get a hold of your entire family if they still subscribe to the newspaper throw it out don't read it don't watch the news. Don't do this. Don't do that. Because it's just going to infuriate them. Um, you know, I mean, 
And that's tough. That's tough for things. And, and other people, and again, the average civilian doesn't understand that. I mean, 2020 is a prime example with stuff, with things that were going on. Some of the local rabble-rousers, if you will, I don't really like that term, but we'll go with that. You know, I know for a fact, my house was pin dropped. My car was, you know, posted, marked, and out and stuff. My social media was being data mined. I actually had to get a hold of my entire family, um, including my ex-wife at the time, and you know, explain, hey, lock your social media down, close everything down, watch your houses. You know, I said at that time, my daughter-in-law spent the summer with her parents in a different state at a different house with my grandson because they run but the same last name. <laughs> right. And it was well known. A lot of times I had operational command with stuff with things and was the one pushing buttons, you know, and they were trying to push mine. You know, more than once I'd walk down to my car down the, and you know me, I wasn't going to change where I was parking. I walked right past them every day, you know, and they would sit there, you know, they, they held up pictures of my vehicle at times. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm like, yeah, okay. That's my car. That's my house. If the car's there, stop on in. Right. <laughs> yeah. Are you threatening us? No. I'm just telling you how this is going to turn out, and it's not going to be bad for me. Um, but, you know, like I said, I mean, it, there was a lot of adjustment through that year and stuff, and most people have no idea what it's like to live with that. You know, you, oh, my God, somebody put a bad social media post up about me. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite a thing. Well, Chris, thanks a lot for coming on. We uh, we could definitely uh, tell a lot more stories, and you've been involved in quite a few things. I mean, even at the beginning of this uh, episode, you were talking about that that big giant shootout in downtown Lancaster. That was just before I got on the job. So much stuff that you've you've seen, you've been through, um, you've led. Uh, but it's that time of the episode where you get the final word. And you can uh, say whatever you want to say as we close out the episode. So, uh, Chris Laser, final word. I uh, have no regrets throughout my career. Uh, you know, you look back at it, hey, would you do something different? Nah, probably not. Uh, and anybody that knows me knows that. I've laid it out. Uh, sometimes it's worked out for me. Sometimes it hasn't. So be it. You know, I, that's the way it goes. With that said, you know, leaving Manham Township coming into the city, I left for a lot of specific reasons. Uh, I've gotten to do most of them in the career in the city. I've always loved Lancaster. That's uh, where my heart's been at. Um, absolutely loved it with stuff. Had some good bosses, had some bad ones over the year, had occasionally a few absolutely great ones. You know, I've learned from all of them. Over the last several years, I've been absolutely disgusted by the lack of leadership nationwide, not only in law enforcement, but as well as from the political standpoint of things. Um, you know, true leadership is not making everybody happy at the immediate time. It's doing what's right. And sometimes you take your lumps for it in the short term. But in the long term, again, you can look yourself in the mirror and say, hey, I did what was right. We touched on it briefly. I don't care what the circumstances are. If you're looking to satisfy check boxes, never works out. Uh, 
you know, we had our best and the brightest class a number of years ago. There's very few standing out of it. Most of them have either been criminally indicted or moved on to other careers before they got criminally indicted. Um, to me, it's absolutely just disgusting. And again, I've worked with various administrations, you know, specifically three, two Democratic, one Republican over my career. Uh, all of them, I will give absolute credit to, had the same long-term vision for the, for the city with things. Uh, but more importantly, we're all willing to stand up, do what was right. They put the right, the right people or the people they felt were the right ones in positions and let them do their jobs. And more importantly, stood behind them. They didn't blow with the wind. They didn't make, you know, what was the feel-good decision at the time. Uh, and it was long, long-term gain and benefit things. And I'll go all the way back to Mayor Stork. Uh, horrible position for her. She in, inherited a horrendous financial situation in the city, and that was handed to her by the former mayor, who repulsed me every time he spoke to city council about you know what he left as far as a surplus for the city. Well, congratulations. You didn't invest in the infrastructure or anything else in the city for years, Art Morris. You know, you, you did us no good whatsoever. Um, and that was Janice Stork that stepped in. She had one term. I don't know that any other mayor, <laughs> any other position could have survived through what she did. Uh, Smith Golf followed with that. Gray followed with that. Maybe two slightly different I ideologies. But there were certain things neither of them would ever have tolerated with things. Um, and that's what got the city to where it's at. You know, this city has been the gem of third-class cities across the state. And not just because of law enforcement, but because of other programs as well. But I watched third-class cities from across the state from the early and mid-90s up through the 2000s come here and say, how'd you guys do this? Oh, here's what it was with stuff. 96, we'll never forget somebody from the city of Reading looking at videos from our SOG program at the time, the yellow shirts, sitting there saying, well, that's great, but we'd never be able to do that. There's a reason Reading is still where it's at to this day and where we're, we were at financially with things. Um, you know, I hope some type at some point that moral integrity steps back in leadership, both in law enforcement and you know, in the elected officials, and I'm not just talking locally, across the country. You look over the last two years, every urban department where somebody has taken lumps or but has done what is right, they recovered years ago. Those that haven't are still working their way downhill with things. And again, you look at the color of skin of somebody and that's your decision process versus the merits of them and their morals. Nothing good comes of it. I don't care what it's for. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I know that comment and this being played out loud, not that I had a chance of moving anywhere else anyway, we'll be done with it. And I don't care because it goes back to the same thing. I'll look myself in the mirror every day and at the end of my career and know I did what was right. And again, not only officers out in the field, but the people that I've dealt with. Both bad guys and good. I've had numerous bad guys come up to me. You mentioned Lafayette Street. Prime example. The day after getting run over, 
I've got cast on both legs. I'm on crutches. I can't move. I'm leaning against a wall. I'm waiting for a family member to bring the car over to pick me up. And one of our local crime families <laughs> comes walking through, eight of them going into women's and babies <laughs> with stuff. And I'm like, I, I can't do anything if I wanted to. It was the most helpless feeling I ever had. Stop and they're like, what's up? And I told them, like, uh, and I'll never forget the patriarch of that family looking at me. That's bullshit. If we find out who did it, we'll let you know. And I'm like, I don't know if I should take that as a credit or not. And this is, I was one of the only people to ever hang a felony charge on this guy. But it was that fairness of treatment with stuff. He got it because he also knew what was coming <laughs> if you mess with us. So, you know, like I said, with that, hopefully that grows. I mean, guys that are on the job now, hey, we're in the valley. It'll swing back up. Stick it out. Do what's right. All right. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you coming on. Much thanks to Chris for coming on this podcast. I've always had a ton of respect and love for him. Uh, even in the times he drove me crazy, he's given 110% to the calling um, of law enforcement and no one can question that. Uh, or his devotion to the job. It was an honor to have him on uh, this episode. As you know, every episode I seek out and recognize an officer that is kicking up the dust in pursuit of the calling that is law enforcement. We call it Cue the Dip. Our Cue the Dip winner on this episode is North Las Vegas Police Officer Nicholas Quintana and his wife for adopting five children he met at a murder scene. It's a really incredible story. On January 14th, Officer Quintana responded to a homicide scene where five children were present, ranging in ages uh, 6 to 17. Their father had been shot and killed, and their mother was under arrest. Listen to this news story from CBS Channel 8 News, Las Vegas, um, regarding this incredible story. We have a North Las Vegas police officer in the spotlight tonight. We're talking about Officer Nicholas Quintana says compassion and his faith pushed him to do something really unimaginable. Christian Gossett is joining us now live in studio with a story that you'll only see here on Channel 8. That's right, guys. Well, we're talking about Officer Nicolás Quintana. He has been with the department for four years and has responded to many calls over his career. Now, he tells me about one call in specific that really touched his heart and how his home is now overflowing with love. I'm a regular guy, you know, who, uh, who happened, you know, God called me to, that, to their incident. North Las Vegas police officer Nicholas Quintana says he can't comprehend why he felt so passionate during a homicide call he responded to in January, but he's glad he did. What stirred my heart uh, to all of this was, well, if I'm being entirely honest, so, so I, I definitely empathize with him. My, my father uh, was was killed by a family member of mine. Officer Quintana says he was on his dinner break January 14th when a call came in about a murder on Osaka Pearl Street, North Las Vegas. When he arrived, he learned a man had been shot and a woman arrested. He also saw five children in the midst of chaos. The youngest, the six-year-old, she had said, no, you know, but I love daddy. That definitely, that's when I said, you know, it, it was choked up, walked away, and that's when those, those, uh, those callings started. That night, Officer Quintana spoke to his wife about the children. You know, how do you spark a conversation in the midst of the most traumatic thing that they will probably ever go through? How do you do that? Days later, a meeting was set up with the children through Child Protective Services. So I look at the kids and I say, well, you know, the whole reason why we're here is not just you know 
because I want to check up on you. The whole reason why I'm here is because I would like to, to receive you guys into our home. We'd like to take you out of the system, you know, out of, out of Child Haven. Are you, are you guys okay with that? The oldest one, um, the 17-year-old, uh, she specifically asked, uh, you, you want all of us? And I said, yes, all of you, every single one of you. Those five yeses kicked off the adoption process for Quintana and his wife, who had been trying to have children for years. Their small home is overflowing with lots of emotions, but mostly love. Definitely testing my faith uh, to be very specific with you, and it is a little stressful. Uh, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't, if it wasn't stressful. But overall, um, you know, I'd like to say that you know things are things are better and good. Lots of smiles there. All right, Officer Quintana says it will take a while for the adoptions, for the adoption process to go through. Now, the Nevada Police Union, well, they are helping out with donations as well as beds and dressers for the children. And guys, as we wrapped up the interview with the officer, well, he tells me that basically, I mean, he his hope, his hope and his wife's hope was just that all these kids just grow up together. Stay together. Yeah, just an amazing, amazing story. Just an incredibly big-hearted uh, <laughs> yeah. gesture and, and commitment by that couple. What about the extended family of the kids? Why did they not go with them? So the officer tells me that the family, they all had relatives outside of Las Vegas. We're talking about outside of Nevada and even in other countries. And again, their focus was that they just wanted these kids to just grow up uh, together, not be separated within the system. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Good Thank for you. them. Big wow. heart. The North Las Vegas Police Officers Association has set up a GoFundMe page to assist the Quintana family as they care for these five children. As a podcast, we were blessed to be able to support them. If you're interested in giving the, to the Quintanas, just search uh, for Help the Quintanas. That's Q-U-I-N-T-A-N-A uh, on the GoFundMe uh, website. I'll also place a link for their GoFundMe page in the podcast descript- description. Diakonas, a cop's calling, salutes Officer Nicholas Quintana and his wife. This episode's Cue the Dip winners for selflessly going from a family of two to a family of seven. Officer Quintana responded to a crime scene, but his service didn't end when he left that scene, and he and his wife continue to serve those five children. Throughout this episode, adoption has been highlighted, a legacy of it in Lieutenant Chris Laser's family, which came up in our conversation, and this cue the dip, dip story highlighting the Quintana family. Adoption. The act of bringing a stranger or an outsider, an unknown, into your home as your own, to treat them as your own, to love and care for them as your own, to encourage them and identify them as your own, to make them family, to call them son or daughter and brother or sister. It's an amazing act of sacrifice and kindness and often offers a new beginning for the children involved. I personally cannot witness an adoption or hear about an adoption without thinking about a Christian's adoption by our Heavenly Father. Consider Galatians 4, 4 4-5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Or Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Adoption by God through Jesus is what these verses are talking about. That's how we are adopted, through Jesus. The passage in Galatians in verse 5 speaks to the fact that Jesus redeems us so that we can receive adoption by God and be considered his son or daughter. The Romans passage calls us heirs of God and fellow heirs 
with Christ if we suffer with him, with Jesus. If we humble ourselves, if we bend our knee, repent and believe, and then out of that obedience, separate ourselves, becoming slaves to Christ instead of slaves to sin. 1 Peter 2.16 tells us that we are to act as free people and do not use our freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as, a bond, as bond servants or slaves of God. It is an amazing th- thing to think about God Almighty adopting us as his sons and daughters, not through anything we do, but through his own son's suffering, through his own son's blood and sacrifice, through his own son's death and resurrection, we are adopted. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that, we, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God the Father wishes to adopt you into his family and wishes to call you a son or daughter. He is a perfect father. Some of you may be thinking or even saying out loud right now, my family is messed up. My father abandoned me or abused me. Or maybe you don't even know your father. Your earthly father's sins, his evil ways or shortcomings point to an ideal. His faults and imperfections are unknown and unrecognized unless we know what it should be like, unless we know what to compare it to, unless we have an ideal and perfect uh, example. That ideal and perfect father is God. He desires for you to be his son or daughter. And here's the sobering truth. If you are not a Christian, God is your creator, but he is not yet your father. In fact, if you have not confessed and believed, you are an enemy of God. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This is why being adopted by him through his son is an incredible grace, an incredible gift. I have a son. I love him. He is very much like me. We share a love and affection for each other that is beyond special and unlike anything else in my life. We talk to each other a certain way. My love for him and my daughter are beyond anything I've ever experienced. I could never sacrifice my son to save another person, even if that person was the most amazing, quote-unquote, good person I ever met. It it wouldn't happen. I, I could not do it. And yet what God did is sacrifice his son for his enemies. While I was still his enemy, he sacrificed his son so that I could be adopted as one of his own, as his son. The gift of salvation, the gift of adoption through the sacrifice of Jesus. A gift not given to people who deserve it. A gift given to God's enemies. A gift that is received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Recently, I had a conversation with a friend who made a statement to the fact that he hopes he's saved. He hopes he's accepted by God into heaven on that day, to which I replied that he can know for sure. We don't need to cross our fingers and hope we did enough. We need only to confess and believe. His word tells us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved, or you can hope you are saved, but you will be saved. Confess, believe, be saved and get welcomed into the family of God, adopted as a son and daughter of God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. He has kicked up the dust in pursuit of you from the beginning of time. Why not kick up the dust in pursuit of him right now?